Yo, it's Austin here with Medium Cool, a movie podcast. Again, I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and we are partnering with The Film Yap. Go check out thefilmyap.com for all things film. They never shut up about movies over there. I'm sure you'll find what you want to find, so go check them out. Um, you can also find us on social media at Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is medium uh, Facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. Medium Cool Pod on Instagram. Search it. You'll find us. And at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also uh, email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, we'll talk. Comments, questions, concern, feedback, anything that you want to talk about, let me know. Um, and hey, you know what? You can even get a hold of me on Twitter. I'm at Austin Glidden. Find me, uh, you know, tweet at me. It'd be cool. And uh, also, wherever you're listening to this, whether it's on iTunes, Spotify, Google Google Podcasts, whatever it is, please give us a subscribe, give us a like. I know that this is kind of the kind of shameless uh, plug here of like pushing to get more followers, but honestly, it's just kind of part of the game. If you can help us out, that'd be awesome. I hope you're enjoying the content, and I hope it's worth it. Uh, we are having an absolute blast, and we wanted to make sure that our third episode, our final October episode, concluding our uh, horror month, we wanted to make sure that we gave plenty of time because we've been going over time with our lists. And let me tell you this, our conversation with our top five coming up here in just a moment, uh, Joe and I do, we go just as long as we did with a list, an interview, and like episode two had an interview and a list this is just us doing our top five, and it's as long as that. I mean, we took our time. We dug into these. We had a blast. Plus, I think our top five, I think Joe had seen just as many of my top five as I'd seen of his. So we just kind of had more of a back and forth. I'm really proud of this. I really uh, enjoyed talking to Joe, as I always do. And I hope you guys enjoy this episode, too. As I've said before, next week will be our first show uh, after Horror Month. And, you know, we're still, like I said, trying to get our bearings and uh, kind of feeling out what works for us. And so uh, we're going to be trying uh, some structures out and whatnot. Feel free to give us your feedback. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Uh, We're totally down with hearing that. Uh, But right now, I just want to jump into this top five list. Again, that's all this episode's going to be. So I hope that you enjoy our discussions related to our lists. This is uh, episodes easy for me to say this is our choices on our top 15 favorite horror movies one through five starting with five but for now let's go see what joe's up to start recording now and um yeah so as i told you joe um today i guess uh, last night, I want to do this before we get into our movie list. Last night, I watched Dick Johnson is Dead on Netflix. This yeah. came out this year by Kirsten Johnson, who's a cinematographer, uh-huh. but she's made some documentaries. Camera Person was her last one. I have not seen that yet. Definitely plan to. Have you or have you not yet? Calling you out, Joe. Have uh-huh. you or have you not yet finished Dick Johnson is Dead? I did. I finished it this afternoon. Um, wow. Yeah, you... Yeah, you you texted me this morning. I actually got so um, you're not privy to this quite yet. Well, I, I think I told you, but I get um, um, review content from Netflix um, so that I get I get get to screen some of these early. I actually had a copy of that. I think it came out last week, maybe the week before. I think I had it in my 
account for maybe two or three weeks before that and didn't get to it. Um, and you know, and, and I started watching it and I thought it was a great idea. Um, it didn't fully, like, I, I didn't fully get into it and I paused it to go do something and never got back to it. Yeah. And then you, and I kind of just forgot, I didn't forget about it, but you know, I, um, I wasn't in a huge hurry to finish it necessarily. And, and then you mentioned today that you really enjoyed it. I was like, Oh, I'll go and finish it. And yeah, so I, I watched this afternoon and, um, Go, go ahead and go ahead and just, I'll let you uh, go ahead and first. gush. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. that's what's about to happen. Cause I'm going to tell you this, <laughs> like if, if, if you're listening and you haven't listened and you haven't watched Dick Johnson is dead. First off, Dick Johnson, my wife made a hilarious joke about that for obvious reasons, but right. Dick Johnson is dead. It sounds like a joke. This is far from a joke. This is a, a very serious movie cloaked in kind of uh fantastical fun times. Um, Basically, Kirsten Johnson uh, herself is in it, along with her father, Richard Johnson, and they call him Dick. And um, her mother died like four or five years ago, and she had Alzheimer's, and she, you know, kind of fell in, into uh, dementia, basically, and kind of lost herself. Um, and they had to go through that painful process that Dick called The Long Goodbye, which is a great Altman movie, by the way, but also like... He called it the long goodbye because it just takes forever for people to kind of like fade away and finally, you know, find reprieve in death. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. Anyways, the point is, uh, like, Dick now has dementia. Mm-hmm. This is like the most heartbreaking thing I've ever heard is these people who have had to live through, you know, their spouse slash, uh, spouse slash mother having to watched it happen, having like seen this thing unfold. And then now you are, you have the thing your wife had and you know, that will be you and you have to survive. Now he was a psychiatrist. He loves life. That's very clear. He is the sweetest man. Every time he laughs, I am so full of joy. Like, he's just like this person you just don't want to die. And basically, Kirsten Johnson asks her dad to make these little vignette, little uh, short movies uh, that are basically fantasies of him dying. Every one of them, one time he randomly gets hit with an air conditioning unit that falls out of a window. You know, another time he gets hit by a beam that someone's carrying and it like cuts his jugular. <laughs> one time he falls yeah. downstairs and it's gruesome and there's like fake yeah. blood, but they clearly they make it very clear that he's in on it and that, you know, they're they're doing this and, and they're doing it in a way to kind of cope with his impending death and his impending yeah. dissension into um, like uh, the brain of a dementia patient, you know. And yeah. uh, the movie covers a few years, and a year in, he's already, you know, getting that kind of eye glaze, and and he's forgetting things. He's waking up in the middle of the night thinking that he has patience because he was a psychiatrist, but he'd already retired from his practice, which you also see in the movie. And as he is moving out of his house that he's been there for forever, and it's where his he and his wife were when she died, and he has all these memories, and, you know, he's just walking through each room, just looking at the house. That's heart-wrenching to me. And whenever whenever Kirsten finally talks to him and says that like he can't drive and he's like, "But I can drive." I'm like, "I'm not that lost, you know." Right. And uh, like he starts to cry 
And that, mm-hmm. that scene is so vulnerable and so real because it's not because he lost his car. That's yeah. I mean, he was getting rid of it anyways because he's moving in with Kirsten yeah. in New York. But it's it's his independence is gone. You know, mm-hmm. like he is becoming his wife. And that's the last yeah. thing he wants. I'm, I'm telling you this now. I, like, you know, I haven't seen a lot of movies from this year yet. We've talked about that. I've been out of it for the last two years. I'm trying to get back into it. Film Yap's helping me a lot. I'm really trying about like a movie a night or a, I'm trying to get at least four or five in a week so that by the yeah. end of the year we can do a top 10 or whatever we do. Mine won't mean shit, but at least I'll have one. And that's what I right. want. I guarantee this is in my top five right now. Uh-huh. Easy number one. I yeah. love movies that move me. And this yeah. took me for the ride. Uh, mm-hmm. I think this is really important. I love that uh, like the whole point in reenacting or not reenacting because they don't happen, but like enacting these kind of um, f- these fantasies or whatever of of, yeah. of uh, Dick Johnson dying. Um, in many ways, you know, uh, uh, Josh Larson from the film from Film Spotting the podcast. Go check that out if you're a film lover; they're great. But oh, yeah, uh, Josh Larson brought up uh, something about the movie, and I love it because he 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 brought up the observation of. You know, when they're making the movie and he's dying, they're not actually coping or dealing with him dying. It's almost yeah. like a, a a distraction or something. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it, it almost does the opposite of what they're trying to do. But then mm-hmm. you get these really beautiful scenes where I don't think Kirsten was like actively filming. Like she was filming, but then she mm-hmm. put the camera down, but she left it filming. And you get yeah. a lot of shots of these very candid, very... Um, just heart rent, dude. This is like so sad and so um powerful to me. I mean, this this is really. I mean, there, there are a lot of documentaries that come out that I think are really profound or are really effective. And in 2011, yeah. there was one called Marwin Call, which I still haven't seen from beginning to end. I really want to go back and watch that. But that uh-huh. was what? Have you seen Marwin Call by chance? I've not seen that. Yeah, huh? uh, I I recommend it even though I haven't seen it because. The premise is so brilliant because Marwin calls about, you know, this um, this guy who got the shit kicked out of him at a bar, I believe, if I remember correctly, and he had brain damage, so he has no, he can't remember his memories, you know. Yeah. So he recreates memories, like his memories and his photo albums are uh, essentially. This is what I've picked up from the trailer and bits I've mm-hmm. seen at least. But uh, he recreates them with like Barbie dolls and Ken dolls, and he dresses them up in these really intricate. Uh, okay. outfits and he takes pictures, but it looks super photorealistic, you know, like, yeah, um, yeah. like he builds these huge sets and, um, he basically tries to like create a history uh-huh. through these things. And they, they did the, um, the movie with, uh, yeah, Steve Carell. Yeah. 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 Which yeah. is the uh-huh. fictional version of that story. Welcome yeah, to Marwin yeah. call. I think is what it's called. Yeah. Um, but the, the doc, one, I believe, yeah. yeah, and 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 the yeah. 2011 doc though is about the real guy, and 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 but this reminds me of that type of thing, you know, like this is a heart wrenching story about this person, and it just focuses in depth on a person, and in this case, it's two Kirsten dealing with her father following, uh, unfortunately and uh, unwillingly, into uh, the footsteps of his late wife. But also yeah. it's Dick trying to come to grips with the fact that he's dying. They even have like a mock funeral, you yeah, know, and, yeah. and that's really powerful as well because some of the people are like really breaking down even though he's alive. And yeah. I cannot recommend this enough. That's all I'm getting uh-huh. at. I needed to fit this in before we start talking about movies too too long. Uh-huh. Um, 
Dick Johnson is dead, dude. Oh my uh, god. I think I liked it way more than you, but the point is we we yeah. need to do like a uh a, a little like 15 minute bonus content movie review where we just like fight about this movie. Joe. Okay. Um because even though yeah. we both like it, I'm sure you like it. Um I'm going like to fight with you about why it's better than anything you like. <laughs> No, it's it's uh, it's it's a real treasure. So, anyways, what we're really here for, though, is uh, Joe and I are finally at our top five on our top fifteen uh, favorite horror movies. This is our one through five. We're dedicating. Um, hopefully, I don't have to edit it, this out from us changing our minds. But as far as I'm concerned, right now, this is our episode for the most part. The bulk of uh, episode three. So. Um, yeah, this is our top five. We are here just to, uh, recap, uh, Joe, why don't you give us, uh, if I, hopefully you have it in front of you, uh, why don't you give oh, us yeah. your, uh, six through 15, six through, yeah. So yeah, let's start with 15, um, beyond the darkness from 1979. Uh, number 14 is burial ground. Um, sometimes with the, um, subtitle, the Knights of terror from 1981, uh, number 13 is Friday the 13th, uh, part five, uh, from 1985. Uh, number 12 is Creep Show, 1982, from George A. Romero. Uh, 11 is A Nightmare on Elm Street, part three, Dream Warriors, from 87. 10 from Dusk Till Dawn, Robert Rodriguez, from 97. Nine is 1987's The Stepfather. Eight is Poltergeist, from Toby Hooper, 1982. Seven is Mary Lambert's Pet Cemetery, based on the Stephen King book from 89. And number six is The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, again, Toby Hooper from 74. Fantastic. Yeah, and, and my picks for 6 to 15, uh, my 15 is Brain Dead or Dead Alive, as it was uh, called here in the States by Peter Jackson in 92. Number 14 was From Beyond, 1986, by Stuart Gordon. Uh, the Conjuring from 2013 by James Wan. Uh, 12 is The Fly, 1986, by David Cronenberg. Number 11 is Wreck, the 2007 uh, Spanish found footage horror movie that I'm not even going to try to pronounce the filmmaker's names because mm -hmm. I would just feel bad. Um, number 10, Eyes Without a Face, uh, from 1960, directed by Georges Fanjou. Uh, number 9 is Joe's number 6, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 1974, Toby Hooper. My number eight is Let the Right One In. That is 2008 by Tomas Alfredson. Number seven is the U.S. remake of uh, from 2007 called Funny Games by Michael Haneke. And my number six is A Nightmare on Elm Street, the original, 1984 by Wes Craven. Uh, we're going to go ahead and jump in to our top five. And why don't we just go for it, man? I, I think... Yeah. I... I, I I don't think any of my choices, I'll just say this, are surprising, okay? Yeah. In terms of like, I mean, you might not know what they are, but when you hear them, you're like, oh, yeah, that belongs in a top five. I don't think any of them are surprising, but I will say this because I don't think we really need to go over our criteria. These are really yeah. our favorites. You know what I mean? Like, yes. these, these are our favorites. So um, the, thing, the thing about this is in 2012, when I originally planned to make a – uh, film podcast, which, you know, it took me eight years, but, um, I made a top 20 horror films list. Now, most of these are still there. Um, some of them, like I mentioned in the last episode, 
uh, are movies that I just really need to rewatch again before I feel comfortable with them being on this list. Uh, so I kind of uh, took them out and placed other movies in in their uh, in that place. But uh, these top five, I am confident in. Uh, they have not changed uh, for what eight years now. Uh, so mm-hmm. I am very confident, as I'm sure you are. Why don't you go ahead? If you have anything to preface with, you may. But give us your number five, Joe. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Just really, yeah. Some of the same. Yeah, this is a pretty. Um, uh, it's it's a pretty much a firm list at this point in my life. I don't see it changing a whole lot as far as the top five goes. Uh, but at number five is is really a it's a movie that doesn't really get its due. I think as as kind of the classic it is. It it came out in 1985. Um, it is one of the I'm not going to say necessarily the first, but it's one of the first uh, self aware horror movies where the people who um, the the characters in the film themselves watched horror movies and and used those rules much like Scream you know Scream popularized it. Uh, this movie came out boy a decade or more before Scream doing the same thing. Directed by Tom Holland, it's a, a film called Fright Night. Oh was, yeah, yeah. So um, so th- this movie was remade um, in I want to say 2011 2012 with we don't uh, talk about Anton that. Yelchin. Yeah, Anton Yelchin and yeah, yeah, really. Um, so it was it was weird. Um, a lot of um, my critic friends kind of really enjoyed that movie. I really did not so much. It uh, I think in some ways, Fright Night as a as a film of its time, uh, just in kind of the general premise of it. Um, so basically, the the idea is that uh, there's a, a teenage boy who is loves horror movies. He loves watching, especially this. Um, this late night horror host called named Peter Vincent. He's played by Roddy McDowell and um, Roddy McDowell's character is kind of a Peter Cushing esque um, vampire hunter in his, uh, you know, in his film career. And now he's been relegated to this late night weekend horror host um, kind of in the vein of Elvira or um, at least in this area, Sammy Terry is, is kind of that plays that role. I, that's exactly what I thought of when I saw that was Sammy Terry. Yep. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. And, and every, you know, in, in the eighties, in the, you know, the days of, you know, UHF and, you know, pre-cable kind of days, every, every major city I'm sure had one of these kinds of shows where they, they played a horror movie, a classic horror movie. And then in between, you know, the, the bumpers are, are this character. So, um, so, you know, Roddy McDowell is this broken down old actor who's relegated to this TV gig and um, this, this teenager uh, has a mysterious new neighbor and he very quickly comes to believe that he's a vampire. And not only that, but that he's stalking him um, because he knows he's a vampire and is trying to kill him. So he enlists the help of this, this famed movie vampire slayer to kill him. And the only problem is nobody believes him. Uh, obviously that, you know, it's obviously a fantastical thing. Um, William Ragsdale is the star um, Amanda Burst, who kind of had some fame in the eighties on the show married with children, um, is plays, you know, is, is, this is one of her early roles. I mentioned Roddy McDowell and then Chris Sarandon plays, uh, Jerry Dandridge, the, the vampire care, the vampire next door. Um, again, it's, it's very well, it's very notable because especially, um, uh, the, the, uh, the friend character played by a guy named Stephen Jeffries, is kind of the expert on vampires. It, it's even predates the lost boys. The lost boys is kind of the next step in this, you know, this kind of 
um, self-awareness, especially in terms of vampire movies. But um, and the, the guy's name is Evil Ed. He's you know he's so, such a horror film fan that his name is Evil. They call him Evil, and you know kind of derisively. <laughs> and uh, uh, Charlie Brewster is the main character. Um, this is William Ragsdale's character's name, and and so they have this back and forth, being friends, and you know so he's like basically telling him all the the tricks to beat a vampire with garlic and crosses and wooden stakes and et cetera, et cetera. I don't know why Charlie didn't know this already watching, you know, having grown up watching all these movies, but you know, whatever. <laughs> so, um, you know, so it's, it's got this silliness to it. It's got this kind of campiness to it, but at the same time, there's also a, a real kind of terror to it. And, um, you know, that, that idea of being a teenager, being all alone where no one believes you and this man very easily is charming everyone lulling, you know, the, the, the big thing with vampires, right. Is you must be invited inside. And so he's like, Oh, I'm safe. And then the next day his mom's like, Hey, Charlie, come here. I need to introduce you to somebody. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's the neighbor sitting there in the living room and, uh, he's like, Oh, well, you know, now that I've been invited, I'm gonna come a little more often. And he, and he looks at the mom's like with your permission. And she's like, Oh, anytime, come over anytime you want. And, and it's like this joke, right. Oh, and, yeah. You know, you almost want to laugh about it, but there, there's a couple of really, you know, pretty fun scares. Um, there's even a, just this, the faintest of hints about uh, giving this vampire a little bit of kind of pathos of his own, you know, where, you know, it's it's his curse in a sense. But at the same time, uh, there, there's a scene where he's, you know, seducing a character into, you know, joining him as, you know, as a vampire. And it, it just turns very quickly and you just get this very cool character glimpse, uh, you know, uh, into this character. So, um, it's a lot of fun. There's some really, uh, kind of fun, practical creature effects. Um, it's a, it's a terrific movie. Um, and, and yeah, I, I can't say enough. If you've not seen Fright Night, the original Fright Night, don't worry about the remake. You know, it's like <laughs> they changed way too much. And it's the, the, the biggest thing about the remake that was fun was them using the housing crisis in Las Vegas, where there are people just abandoning homes, um, they used that as kind of a backdrop, which was which was fun enough, but the the overall premise didn't work too much. Colin Farrell was uh, played the Jerry Dandridge character, the Chris Sarandon character, as the the vampire, and was you know he was fine, but whatever. This is this is kind of an unheralded classic for me, um, and I think it's really worth uh, you know going back and watching if you've not seen it. Yeah, you know I I lived with my best friend at the time. Um when the remake was coming out, I don't remember when that was, but it's probably 20, what, 14 or 15, somewhere in that range. So, yeah. It was like somewhere between 11 and yeah, 20. 30. Yeah. And it might've been even earlier. I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure it came out when I was living with him and, uh, he loved the original fright night and I'd never seen it. So I was going through at that point, I was going through my, I have to see a minimum of 75 movies from that year, hopefully a hundred. So I can have a top 10. You know, I was going through all that. I was writing for the film yap originally at that point, And, um, I wanted to watch the new Fright Night because he wanted to see it again because he'd seen it in theaters and he liked it and he wanted, uh, yeah, he wanted me to watch it with him. So he was going to rent it, uh, which, you know, I don't know. That's funny to me, but he was going to go to family video and then he was going to rent it or whatever. <laughs> and so like, uh, but he's like, dude, you got to see the original. So we watched them back to back. Okay. So that's probably not fair 
If you yeah. like the first one and you're going to watch it back to back, never having seen the first one before, I don't know how you could watch them and not compare them. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But I love uh, the, the, all the practical effects and um, man, I, I just had, I need to see it again because I can't like talk in depth about it, but I just remember really loving it. The evil Ed character, all of them, like just what a fun movie to me. I just remember thinking that like, I just had, I never felt scared. It was just a fun, like good movie that no one had ever pushed me to see. Yeah. 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 And yeah. And by, by today's standards, the scares are not particularly, you know, they, you're, you're not, there's not a lot of jumping. It's, you know, it, it's more of, yeah, it's more of a kind of a, a, a roller coaster type ride. You know, it's a, it's a fun house ride. Yeah. Uh, has your and, daughter, you know, it, has your daughter seen this? She has. She Does has she think seen, yeah. it's not scary? <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she enjoyed it, but she didn't love it. I, I want to say, I don't remember if we sat and watched the entire, if she sat and watched the entire thing. Um, but you know, sometimes she will, she'll putter out sometimes and, and walk away from some of them. But, um, yeah. And, and we, yeah, and we are referencing, uh, my comments from, from last week's episode where, um, she did rail on the Texas chainsaw massacre. My daughter, 12 years old, does not believe Texas chainsaw massacre to be scary. Um, we're going to find the movie, find out the movie. I did scare her with, uh, coming up here pretty shortly. This is not the one. I, I should definitely uh, make a poll or something to see who thinks Texas Chainsaw Massacre is genuinely creepy and yeah. who doesn't. I'd be curious to see if we're in the minority of that. Uh-huh. I wouldn't say it scares me, but it's it's a it's a fucking creepy movie, that one. I mean, it's yeah. just a weird... I, it's uh-huh. an unsettling, I guess, would be the yes. best way I would put it. And uh, uh-huh. yeah, uh, anyways, we're talking about the wrong movie. Uh, but, yeah. but you're number five, Fright Night. Uh-huh. What's the Fright year Night. again? 1985. 85. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, my my number five is, I mean, no surprise. Uh, if anybody knows me, I guess. Um, excuse me. Uh, my number five is Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 Psycho. Okay. And um, <laughs> I don't even know where to start with this because I could talk about it so much. I mean, we're talking about a movie that has had other movies not only remaking it, but also like about the making of it. And it, you know what I mean? Yes. Like, uh, so it's, I mean, this is, uh, this movie was hugely influential, of course. And it's, uh, you know, he used, if I remember correctly, used his TV crew to do this just to keep the budget down and, and everything, yes. and it still looks as incredible as it does. I mean, the the only thing that does not age well, in my view, if you watch like a a brand new restoration of the movie, is uh, back in that time they would often use still frames, um, kind of uh, pasted over moving frames, um, yeah. because back then it was a fuzzier picture. It wasn't like four K, you know, perfect crystal clear. So you'd never yeah. know. Like you'd never notice it's, it's much like the, uh, rear projection, uh, roads and stuff, you know, back then it was, it looked fine, but now, you know, you can tell, right. And I love that. But anyways, uh, and those, those look pretty bad. Okay. (laughs) Uh, when you just see like something completely still and there are things moving, but honestly, I think 
other than those things, I think the psycho restorations look as good as anything today. Um, I mean, especially when when the the uh, main for the first half of the movie, you're following uh, this uh, female protagonist, and when when she gets offed in the famous uh, shower yeah. murder scene, uh, I mean that is that is that looks as good as anything today. I will Pepsi challenge like any <laughs> any movie, uh, yeah. but you know I'm a huge hit. Like I've talked about Kubrick being my favorite filmmaker. Hitchcock is right up there and top three, probably. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. So I'm a huge fan. So this is an easy pick, um, especially knowing yeah. what my top four are, because I do like those more. But uh, Psycho is, I mean, Hitchcock is also no stranger to creating really interesting and innovative ways to not only use the camera, but to tell a story. Take Rope, yeah. for example, where he builds yes. an entire room or an apartment where he can remove walls so he can move. So it's seemingly all one take, even though it is a series of 11 takes um, yeah. because film reels could only go up to like 11 minutes or 12 or whatever um, he had to cut. But he does it in creative ways. Same thing with uh, you know Lifeboat, for example. You know, he has all these people in one like static location and they can't leave. So how do you make that interesting? Rear window, his protagonist, broken leg, can't leave his apartment. How do you make that interesting? And I'll be damned if he doesn't make it interesting every time. And in in this, no one in America on a popular level, again, other movies may have been this crazy. Um, And I have a few for my honorable mentions, so I will hold off uh, to draw some comparisons. But... Uh, you know, Psycho really blew people's minds in terms of uh, what it was able to accomplish in the 60s, but also how far it took it. And, uh, you know, you have you have uh, the female protagonist at the beginning. I mean, what movie in the 60s or prior to that uh, or even after that, you know, uh, what movie had a protagonist that you follow and that it de- tries to develop and is building only to kill them? And then immediately switch so that you now have to live with the murderer. That's yes. a risk. I mean, that is a risk. And I will I will foreshadow an honorable mention that I might bring up later. But, you know, um, uh, Michael Powell tried to do that in the UK only months removed from this movie in the same year with Peeping Tom. And it ruined his career. He was a beloved. He was a Spielberg of his mm-hmm. era. You know, yep. uh, these fantastical, brilliant movies uh, where he worked with Emmerich Pressburger and they kind of were a duo. And then he goes off and does his movie by himself, Peeping Tom. It, it just destroys his career and he never works again. Psycho, I ha- we could do a whole show on the difference between Psycho and Peeping Tom. But on the surface, you can draw comparisons. And yeah. uh, Psycho, smash hit. Uh, it was eight hundred and six thousand dollars to make. He kept the budget low, made thirty-two million worldwide at that time, and uh, you know ended up, I'm sure, has made millions and millions and millions more since then. Oh, You've yes. clearly seen Psycho. Yes. How do you feel about Psycho? Yeah, I I love Psycho. Now Psycho is not on my list, um, but it it is legit. Yeah, one of the greatest films, you know, horror films ever made. Um, it's, it's arguably the first slasher film, if you want to call it that. Um, but obviously it's so much more than that. Um, the, you know, as, you know, as a kid, I was watching the sequels, um, a lot more than I was the original. 
Um, Psycho, and I, just, I was just watching a on YouTube. There's some making of on Psycho Two, and 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 actually, oddly, Tom Holland, who directed uh, Fright Night that we just talked about, wrote uh, Psycho Two. Oh, um, which I which I didn't know. That that's a weird bit of just coincidence that um, uh, that I just popped into my head. But um, but yeah, the the things that Psycho did, it was you know not again had never been done at the time, right? Um, horror films were were far different, you know, and and it was it was an outrage that they killed off Janet Lee, and you know, in a lot of circles, and uh, you know, the, of course, the famous, you know, no one will be seated after the film begins, and you know, they ask people not to spoil the movie, and um, just the stuff that there's just so many iconic moments. But and, but and also as, also real quick, Hitchcock being a pioneer with advertising. Like yes. he never showed anything in his movies usually around this time. If, if I remember correctly, the the uh, the Psycho trailer uh, uh-huh. was just him talking about it in his very yeah. classic Hitchcock way and showing like still frames or something. Like I, yes. I can't remember it exactly, but I mean it's very minimal and it's basically him saying, "Hey, this is the scariest movie you've ever seen, or right. you'll ever yeah. see. Just uh-huh. come in." I mean, he had a really kind of. Uh, revolutionary advertising techniques that he would use in multiple movies, but this being no exception. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the, um, you know, I, you know, I will say, um, you know, like I said, I saw the sequels first. Um, I saw psycho two very early. Um, I, I saw psycho three after that. Even, even I think I, I saw the original before I saw psycho four, which, um, which, which, although it's not a great film necessarily, it, it does a lot for the kind of the, the mythos of it all. And then of course the Bates motel series that was out a few years back, um, that I, I haven't actually finished that. I need to finish it, <laughs> but, um, but the, the original man was just, it was groundbreaking in so many ways. And I will say as a kid who was raised on horror movies, who saw every ripoff and knockoff of psycho, that there was, you know, watching, you know, watching the blood and guts and everything, you know, when I saw the original, it wasn't the shower scene that terrified me so much as it was when, uh, I, I want to say it was, was it the Loomis character when he goes up the stairs? Oh my God. I was waiting for you to get comes, finished real quick. I was waiting for you to yeah. get finished. Cause I wanted to bring this up. I want you to tell the listeners the scene, but this is one of my favorite scenes. I'm on your bus, man. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and he shoots it from above, like, like it's like, there's a camera in the ceiling. Right. And he's, you know, he's walking in the house and it's, of course it's a scary, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those like tension building scenes where he's, he's walking up the stairs and you're like, mother is somewhere lurking around. Right. And then suddenly she pops out and stabs him. And there's just like, it's a glancing blow. And it's like this cut that forms on his head. And then the cut starts to bleed. And of course, the, the way he's like falling down the stairs it, it, by today's standards is probably kind of comical, but that's, that was a terrifying scene. And that, and that was the one jump scare that really caught me and, and really just scared the crap out of me as, like I said, someone who's seen, you know, I'd seen the shower scene a million times, you know, out of context. And I've seen, you know, every, you know, all of these different knockoff techniques and the, you know, the, the, the homages and, you know, what have you over, you know, the, the 25 years before I actually saw it. Um, and that was just a genuinely terrifying scene. Um, yeah. And I really enjoy the mythos of, of Norman Bates, 
um, even through those sequels, even the the really the really terrible Psycho Three still does some fun things. And and the way uh, Anthony Perkins went from that character being an albatross to something that really he embraced later on was is really terrific. I was really glad that he was able to embrace it and and he went along with it through those next three movies. And um, I really kind of think Psycho Four doesn't get its due as far as like where it sits in the in the mythos and and how it kind of establishes some of the undertones. It, it kind of gives you some of the the lurid details that you know that that were just kind of hinted at before. So um, I, I I would I I love the whole franchise. Obviously, there the the quality drops off. It drops off steeply from the original to the sequel, and then the you know the sequels kind of almost and I don't want to say progressively worse, but they're, you know, they're, they're good to not good yeah. to decent. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's, it's impossible to follow up the first one because you have oh, such yeah. a, oh, yeah. an incredible iconic filmmaker that even though, as I've already said, this episode, again, Kubrick being my favorite, even Kubrick is no Hitchcock. And I'm not saying oh, that no, he's God. worse or better, but Hitchcock is in a league of his own. And yeah. uh, I've never, well, I've never seen a Hitchcock movie Pre the birds, uh, post the thirty nine steps. <laughs> I hate to be that specific, but I haven't really seen. I don't think I've seen any of his stuff before the thirty nine steps, and I personally really hate Marnie, uh, <laughs> so I can't go that far. But you know, I haven't seen a bad Hitchcock movie in the in in yeah. what forty oh. years that is or something. Um, yeah. I mean, he is an an incredible. Uh, filmmaker that I just uh, you know just on principle he had to be on this list if even if I didn't love Psycho I would mm. represent him probably mm. just on principle but that's my number five uh, mm. we're gonna move on to number four Joe give me your yeah. number four yeah we're we're getting down to the nitty gritty uh, number four um, you you mentioned Stanley Kubrick and um, I'm gonna just go really one of the very first horror movies I saw that absolutely terrified me and that's the shining um 1980 jack nicholson uh shelly duvall um scatman crothers um we you know we i kind of got away from the uh the the money that they were making but the shining in its day in 1980 made 46 million dollars off of a 19 million dollar budget which you know for 1980 and you know 1980 terms is pretty solid you know that that's a pretty strong um taking of course the shining is a famous, famous film. Um, you know, Stephen King, who wrote the book, is you know famously derided the movie and and didn't love what Stanley Kubrick did with it. And made his own version in the '90s in a pretty crappy miniseries. <laughs> with uh, I don't know, did you ever see? Did you ever see that uh, that miniseries? I, I did because real quick, uh, my oldest friend Riley, he's the guy that showed me Amelie that kicked off my whole film life, and uh, he loves The Shining, Kubrick's. But he also loved the miniseries because he because it was more accurate to the book, and he felt like they were both yeah. completely different. Um, yeah. So I saw parts of it, and you have to understand this is even this is before I believe my two thousand three like eye opening yeah. to movies, and it was way too cheesy for me. So I never yeah. finished it. It may be good. I mean, I don't know. You don't seem impressed. I might not be. Um, but it yeah. has the guy from Wings in it, so <laughs> right, Stephen Weber, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, Stephen Weber. I want to say Rebecca De Mornay plays the wife who was most famous for um, Risky Business and 
uh, the hand that rocks the cradle. I think she played the wife. She played the Shelley Duvall character. Um, no, but yeah, this is, of course, the original is iconic with Jack Nicholson. Um, uh, you know, I, I love the book. Um, and, and I get, I guess to an extent, you know, Stephen King, this is relatively early in his career. I guess I could get where he might not be on board with some of the changes. Um, but I think the, um, the topiary animals being changed to the, to the maze is a, uh, was a brilliant stroke, you know, from Kubrick and it, um, it added so much to that adaptation. Um, the, the, the little, the, the twin girls are still one of the creepiest images in all of cinema ever. I'll say this real quick. If the twins, yeah. uh, ever listen to this, I want to interview you. So, yeah. Hey, <laughs> so. hey, hey, our, our buddy Sam might have an in. He, um, I believe one of them emailed him yep. or his Facebook friends with him or something. Yep. Yep. Our so. friend, our friend, Sam Watermeyer went to a horror convention and took some photos of him and he tagged him on yeah. Facebook and posted them. And then they actually sent him a direct message asking yeah. for permission to use those photos and also mm-hmm. said, Hey, we follow you too, because we think you're really entertaining. And if you ever yeah. meet Sam Watermeyer, bring that up and he'll blush. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. You could, you can get Sam in so many ways. Um, yeah, that's one of them. Um, but yeah, the, you know, it, it's as horror movies go, it is, it does so much really well. It uses, I mean, the it's beautifully shot. Um, there's a great, there's great lore behind it. Um, there's a really great documentary about it. Have you seen Room Two Thirty Seven? The documentary about. Yeah, don't tell my friend Riley. He'll go on a rant about how much he hates it. <laughs> I find it fascinating, though. I do think the vast majority of their concepts are bullshit. They're yeah. fascinating yes. because they're in depth, dude. I mean, they made a documentary about it. I mean, right. Indian burial grounds and, and right. symbology and, uh, yeah. I mean, dude, just, you know, the, the, uh, there's, uh, isn't there one that somehow ties the shining to the moon landing or something? Yes, dude, yes. I, it's wild, man. Yeah. It's well, the, the theory is that Kubrick directed the yeah. fake moon landing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And so they, yeah, they, and, and the shining is his, um, is his, um, admission that he did such. And and it's largely on the the strength of the of the boy Danny play uh, wears a an Apollo eleven sweater or something yeah. at one point uh, briefly in the film. But I, yeah, I agree with you. It's it's mostly complete nonsense. But it's but they go they go you know full out on it. So it's it's entertaining to to watch. Even you know you sit there and go these guys are out of their minds. But but it's really entertaining anyway to watch. It's fascinating. Um, yeah, I. I don't ascribe to any of it, but it's, you know, it's, it's a fun, it's fun. It's a fun. What if kind of, you know, theory stuff, but there's just, there's so many memorable things in, you know, in that film, it's, it's an absolute classic. It's absolutely terrifying. You know, the, the person, the people closest in your life turning on you, um, you know, in this, in the case of Danny and, and, uh, and the wife, um, and then, you know, also the, the losing your mind and losing yourself to a large, you know, to addiction. There's that addiction aspect with, the yeah. with Jack's alcoholism, but, uh, and Nicholson is just, you know, I mean, perfect in it. it it's probably, it's probably still a signature role. I would say, uh, you know, in a career that has boy, any number of half a dozen or more that you could call, you know, really signature, yeah. you know, timeless roles. So, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, it's it's fantastic. My my number four, The Shining. Yeah, I I, I want to say one thing about it, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it for a minute because I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about it again. We'll see. Um, but um, uh, one thing is you brought up like the the changing of uh the maze, you know, with the maze and and uh Stephen King not being a fan. One thing, this is a bit of a caveat, but I'll come back here. One thing is that I just really uh, don't subscribe to. I almost said I I hate, but I get it. I just don't subscribe to this. Is take a Marvel movie, for example. People who read comics, like me, I love comic books. Um, But, you know, like if I read Winter Soldier and then I watch Captain America 2 and they're not Mm -hmm. the same, I don't care. I don't want them to be. I want them to be a good film first. Mm-hmm. And if they depart from the from the uh, the original medium, which they should, because yes. you can't tell a fifty page comic book in two hours, so you have right. to make changes. Mm-hmm. Um, so my biggest pet peeve is if someone's making a good movie but it doesn't line up with the source material, fuck mm-hmm. off. Like let it right. be what it is. And the same thing goes mm-hmm. for uh, video games or uh, I mean any medium where there is an original and someone else does the thing. Just, right. just, just let it be its own thing. And in video games, for example, last year or this year, actually, maybe I can't remember now. Uh, Final Fantasy VII, which is my favorite game of all time, came out in 1997. We're getting on a detour here, but I'll get back. Uh, 1997 game was remade. Uh, I, I think it was this year. I don't know why my brain's not working, um, oh. but you know, it was the first game I'd ever pre-ordered, and it was way different than the original. Okay, but it had key components to the original, and I didn't want it to be the same. I know that game, and I still have that game. I can go play it anytime I want. I own it on like a billion different platforms, but like the remake was good in its own right. Is it as good? No, but it has its own charm and it's its own thing. And all I want from a movie is to be a good movie first. I don't want it to be a good horror movie i want you to make a good movie that is horrific and fits in that genre and one thing that kubrick did time and time again is he took original source material lolita 2001 um clockwork orange the shining i mean you you could just go down the list right and all of those are different every one of them and uh the shining possibly chief among them um but in 2001 probably but um you know, The Shining is way different, but what did he create? Yeah, it didn't do great. I mean, yes, that's success by any standard, 19 million, yeah. and then you make 46. But knowing mm-hmm. how popular it is now, that's a yeah. shocking number. Mm-hmm. You know, like, because you'd think it'd be like it, it cost 11 or uh, it cost 19 million and it made, mm-hmm. you know, 400 million dollars because it's so popular. It wasn't, right, yeah. it was panned at that mm-hmm. time. It was not as beloved as we take it now. Um, yeah. But now it's just become the staple. And I, you know, like I said, I, I could keep going, um, but we'll, we'll take a little time off on that. That's your number four, The Shining. Because I'll yeah. just, I could talk about it forever. Um, yeah. But yeah, number four, The Shining. My number four is, uh, you know, a great classic on par with, uh, with your number four. We're kind of like in line here right now, I feel like a little uh-huh. bit. Uh, but mine is William Friedkin's 1973, The Exorcist. Uh-huh. Um, I will say this. I love the director's cut and the original theatrical. I think they both have pros and cons. 
mm-hmm. so watch either one. I you know um, before I get into it, the director's cut does have one really great scene I like uh, yeah. where toward the end. I don't know if you've have you seen both by chance. I I saw I believe I've seen I don't remember if I've seen the director's cut start to finish. Um, I've seen at least part of it. I saw this this like the spider walking sequence. Um, I don't remember if I watched the entire thing or not, but well, but that, go, go ahead and tell that's tell really great. Uh, but yeah. there's a scene where both priests are trying to exorcise uh, um, Reagan. Thank you. I, yeah. See, my brain's not working. <laughs> you are my my surrogate brain. Oh. Thank you. Um, oh. But they're trying to exorcise her. And they take a break, and they go into the stairwell, and they stand on a landing, and they just talk about. Uh, they just have this little kind of like heart to heart thing. Is does it need to be there? No, and it's probably why it was cut from the original. But for me, it's like this perfect little moment. Like I really love that. But then there are other aspects of it that it's like, well, I kind of like the theatrical version because I'm just a big yeah. nerd. But my point is, this movie is great either way. It's just really, really good. And twelve year old Reagan McNeil. Uh, begins to adapt an explicit new personality as strange events befall the local area of Georgetown. Her mother becomes torn between science and superstition in a desperate bid to save her daughter and ultimately turns to her last hope. Father Damien Carras, uh, a troubled priest who is struggling with his own faith, that is a key component, um, yeah. is uh, you know the priest dealing with his faith. Uh, I think... As someone who grew up in uh, in the church and you know um, grew up in faith, and that faith has evolved, um, I love you know I went through a deconstruction period in my own faith where I had to try to figure out: Do I even believe in God, and do I believe in this aspect of what I grew up with? In this, and I love seeing movies that allow a person of spiritual authority mm-hmm. to question these things and have faults. Um, and so that is so awesome. Also, you know, I, we showed this in the controversy in American cinema class that I mentioned, uh, I think it was last episode and, uh, people found this movie like half the class found it cheesy. Cause a lot of, yeah. I mean, we're talking about like college age students, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> you know, probably they were probably 21 at that point. And they'd never seen the original. They'd only seen kind of new stuff and only heard about the original. And uh, so when she's, you know, stabbing herself in the crotch with the crucifix and all these things, like people were laughing. And yes, like it is almost comical because it's so outrageous. But as we mentioned with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, prior to this movie, what movie compares to The Exorcist? Right. I mean, like, there's not one. There isn't. There just isn't. Like, uh, The Haunting. Yeah, I think a super creepy Robert Weiss movie. Like, like yeah, yeah. definitely nothing sure. like this, even no. close. Like, the irreverence. Talk about uh, Hitchcock and Psycho and his advertising. This movie, dude, they took yeah. all the churches uh, and the conservative evangelical hate, and they threw that shit into the trailers. They're like, hey, yeah. these people hate it for a reason. Come check out why. Right? People... Yeah. You know, they're using um, this stuff uh, like, you know, uh, the lore of people getting possessed in screenings of it. Right. So, of course, yes. thrown in there, uh, people vomiting in the theater. I mean, they're yeah. using all of this to advertise. And if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. they did the same thing, like no admittance after it starts. If I'm not mistaken, yeah. they did oh. a lot of things like that. And if I remember correctly, don't quote me on this, listeners, 
Um, I could be wrong here, but I want to say William Friedkin on multiple occasions uh, went to different theaters and just like stood in the projector booth and just watched people's reactions. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Because he had a really uh, breathtaking outing with The French Connection. I really love that movie, and it was really influential and used a lot of interesting kind of new techniques that he borrowed a lot from the French New Wave and all of these other things, but he took all of that and brought it into this very, at the time, unconventional horror movie. Um, mm-hmm. The Yeah, we know it's pea soup that she pukes, but that shit's gross, man. Like, that's yeah. awful. And uh, all the subliminal kind of like... Uh, single frames they get shot in of all this like weird crazy shit uh the spinning head the stabbing with the crucifix uh the scene that actually broke the actress's back when she's being like flailed against the bed i I, I might not have broken it but it like it actually like hurt her uh if you if you have access to shutter or any other way and you can get it through amazon i think as well uh cursed movie or cursed films i think is what it's called i still have it pulled up um Yeah, Cursed Films is the TV series, but they do one on The Exorcist because, you know, like Poltergeist, this has like a curse around it. There's actually a doctor whenever they're trying to check the brain, like uh, Reagan's brain and stuff to make sure that she's okay. And there's a doctor in it who later ended up being a serial killer or something (laughs) like in real life. Like, it's crazy. You should just see it just for that kind of trivia, you know? Uh, Yeah. Really interesting. Uh, Ellen Bernstein is the mom. She's fantastic. I love her anyways. Yeah. Uh, She's fantastic. Uh, I am, for some reason, forgetting the older priest's name. Max von Sydow. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Thank you. Father Mary. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So of, of, for me, of Bergman movie fame, uh, but Max von Sydow, uh, awesome father. So you have the, 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 uh, the struggling, uh, the struggling questioning his faith father uh, who has doubt, which if anybody was raised in the church, you understand that doubt is kind of the gateway to the devil, basically. Like you let the devil yeah. in through doubt, right? So uh-huh. you have this priest who has doubt, and then you have uh, Max von Sydow, who is the representation of like ultimate priesthood, right? He's the yeah. guy you call for exorcisms. So you have mm-hmm. these two kind of juxtaposed characters. And that's part of why I love that little scene in the director's cut where they go to the landing. It's very brief. You could easily YouTube it um, if you've seen the original, but it's really, really awesome. Uh, that's my number four. Do you have anything to add to the exorcist? There's so, there's so much. Yeah. You, um, you, you covered a lot of it. Um, yeah. I, I did want to add Ellen Burstyn also, um, which I just learned, there's a scene where she gets thrown, thrown to the floor. Yeah, and she legitimately injured herself there, yeah. too. The scream she that talk- she lets out uh, is yes. so beautiful, but unfortunately uh, at the uh, uh, at the expense yeah. of, of her health, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's the take that's in the film where she, she hurts herself, yeah. Yep. Um, so, you know, that, that's a minor bit. Um, it, it's funny because I just recently was on a board, uh, you know, a Facebook page, I should say, uh, devoted to one of the elementary schools I attended. And there's a collect, you know, the, of course there are people of all ages who went to the school and there were people who went in the seventies and there was a guy who actually made a comment that he got suspended from school for having a copy of the exorcist, the book on him when he was at school. They suspended him and sent him home that day just yeah. for having that book 
just for having it on him. Yeah, I think so, I think and, I think a film history kind of aspect is looking at what was happening in 1973. You had the counterculture mm-hmm. movement that was really kick. I mean, has full bloom at this point, which mm-hmm. was honestly the the separation of generations. So you have yeah. all the like you have all of these very old fashioned like uh, you know 50s. Uh, type mm-hmm. adults, what we imagine, and you have like the counterculture and the new generation, the youth movements, yeah. and uh, The Exorcist comes out, and you have to understand all of these older generations. The fifties was it was God fearing country across the yeah. board, east to west. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying there weren't progressive elements and, and atheists and things like that, but you didn't talk about it as much. That's not right. a part of it. I mean, when when the production code was happening up to sixty eight, the motion picture production code, uh was largely based on Christian values. Yeah. So, I mean, this mm-hmm. was deeply ingrained uh, in in our society, even up to this point, even though youth may have been more progressive uh, mm-hmm. than uh, the rest of America, the majority of Americans uh, followed kind of a more traditional Christian values. Whether they subscribed to those religious beliefs or not, they were so ingrained in our culture, and so much of our culture was built off of that. So imagine having that framework, and then you have a movie like The Exorcist that is 100% sacrilegious, yes. and 100% goes against everything that we are told not to do. Mm-hmm. And it bucks the system and says, I'm going to scare the shit out of you, and I am going to use cultural norms based on religious uh, values, and I'm yeah. going to say, fuck them, you are going to be scared out of your wits. And uh, Friedkin was 100% successful. This movie cost $11 million to make and made a whopping $441 million. That is, that is a insane. That is a huge huge number that I think is only topped. You can probably answer this with it being your favorite film, but is topped by Jaws, uh, I'm sure. But uh, aside from Jaws, which pretty much invented the blockbuster, um, I mean, this is uh, a pretty huge box office number. I mean, people saw this movie again and again because they had to see what was up, what was getting churches so mad, what was getting the government so crazy, why are people puking? I mean, again, the advertising, everything, this was a box office smash. So, um, again, my number four, The Exorcist. Go check out uh, Shudder's Cursed Films. Uh, Google Cursed Films. Uh, again, they're not the most incredible things, but really cool trivia in there, really cool little half-an-hour segments. If you get a chance to check them out, you should see the one on The Exorcist. And... Uh, in Joe's 6 through 10, he had Poltergeist, and that is a, one of them as well. So we're going to go ahead and move forward. Number three, Joe, what is yours? Number three, yeah. Um, so you you mentioned that you had a rule about um, repeating uh, filmmakers, only choosing one. I did not have that rule. Um, of course, I, I use, have used Toby Hooper twice, and now I'm going to use George Romero twice for my number three, which is 1978's Dawn of the Dead. Uh, the sequel to Night of the Living Dead, one of, you know, obviously one of the greatest zombie films, you know, kind of the granddaddy of zombie films, more or less, at least of the modern zombie film. And Dawn of the Dead kind of takes that to a kind of a higher level. Um, it, it's from today's standards is in terms of horror, the 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 scariness of Dawn of the Dead is would probably be a little bit lacking, but 
the gore is not <laughs> by any means. Um, this is another, another movie, um, that, uh, Tom Savini was involved in the, the great effects man. Um, and man, he is spot on top notch here. Um, just gruesome, even, even by today's standards, very, very gruesome. Um, but you know, the, the story again, you know, well, I'll, you know, I'll jump in first of all, uh, $650,000 is what George Romero used to make Dawn of the Dead. And he made $16 million for it. Um, it, it's funny that Romero in his time was not box office, you know, money. So, you know, as, as much as a lot of people, uh, other people are, but, um, but, you know, he's got a couple of these just absolutely just, you know, classic films. Right. Um, so Dawn of the Dead, uh, starts, uh, is it's, I think I called it the sequel to Night of the Living Dead. I don't know if you'd call it a cousin or, or it, it's not a direct sequel as in it's, it's more of a kind of an anthology type, you know, film that that picks up in more or less the same, but you would assume is the same, you know, cataclysmic event, uh, you know, zombies, you know, emerging and coming to life, the dead rising from the grave and, you know, and, and murdering the living. Um, so Dawn of the Dead starts at a, a television station as the outbreak is, is in process. And the, uh, a couple of people, there's a, a police officer and a, um, a couple of news people and then a helicopter pilot escape and they, so they escape as this um, uh, TV station is being overrun by people, by, by both people and zombies, right? At this time, um, the kind of the, uh, the world is ending pretty much so that the zombie outbreak comes in and causes riots. And there's a sequence where um, the SWAT team is breaking into a building where they're hiding um, people who've been bitten and infected and they go the the SWAT team goes berserk and just starts mowing people down um because partly because they're scared and they don't know who's a zombie and who's not and partly because they're they're racist pigs and animals and you know and and, and there's there's actually a, a sequence where there's a one of the cops is is just spewing you know racial epithets you know as he's mowing these my their minorities down this kind of a tenement building so there's there's a lot of that kind of that socioeconomic you know racial strife going on um but in the meantime, there's this little, this small microcosm uh, of people. Um, actually, two people from uh, my hometown of Indianapolis are um, star in this movie. Ken Foray, who plays, uh, and I, I'm going to have to look up his name now. Um, he he's one of the the main stars of the film. And then Galen Ross, who coincidentally I, we've talked about, is someone I maybe could call a friend. Say she's a friend of mine. She's an acquaintance of mine who I've, I've interviewed and I've, I've spent time with her, um, it kind of in person and, you know, as in a kind of a friendly way, um, they, they are the two, two of the, the four main stars. So basically the, the four of them, um, settle at this shopping mall, which at the time was a relatively new phenomenon, right. In, in America. Um, so they, they settle there. They find the shopping mall is not not quite overrun with zombies, but there are some in there. Um, they basically clear the place out and, and barricade themselves in and live like Kings while the rest of the world around them is, is l almost literally going to hell. Right. And uh, of course, you know, there, there are other groups from the outside who want to get in. Um, there's a, a biker gang that is, ends up kind of coming to try to um, take their little paradise from them. Um, but it's, it's just, 
as a kind of a sociopolitical kind of thing, it it says so much about consumer culture. Um, the the zombies are almost comedic at times, and and actually part of the climax of the film is literally a slapstick, almost like Laurel and Hardy old time comedy bit where these bikers are literally throwing pies in the face of zombies. And you know, they're, <laughs> it's, it's really just bizarre and, and comedic. And of course it goes bad and, and there's eviscerations and there's guts and intestines being pulled out and things like that. It's it, like I said, the scares, it's not going to scare you in the traditional sense that some of these other films do. Um, it's not throwing scares at you for the most part. The terror sort of, you know, if, if you're watching it in the right frame of mind, it's something that can can sneak up on you and be kind of this existential kind of dread. Um, the the gore will certainly disturb you from time to time. Uh, the, again, me as a grizzled veteran of, of gruesome films since I was six years old, um, watching it as an adult when I'd only seen bits and pieces of it, I was, um, I, I found it to be quite a bit myself. So it's um it's it's a lot of fun in some ways in some ways there's some fantasy elements to it i mean who wouldn't want to be able to live in a shopping mall for a time and you know and unencumbered with all of the you know you know basically whatever you need is at your fingertips um and you know you can it's just it's kind of a it's kind of a a a dream of of from when you're a kid right you you want to run a shopping mall without without um restrictions but um but yeah, the the zombie aspect is is um, is very is really fascinating. It, it, again, one of my favorite films. Um, I mentioned Galen Ross. I told you a story um, before we were filming um, about a time when I when I first met her and I interviewed her. We were at a shopping mall while she was screening a documentary. Um, she was going for a Q and A, and we walked. We were walking through this mall that was closed, and she um, and she made mention that we were walking together through this mall <laughs> and, and gave me this, she gave me this really awesome, like star, you know, starstruck moment where I was like, that's the coolest thing ever that you mentioned, you know, realize that and mention that to me. Um, you're both reliving, yeah. reliving the movie together. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, um, if, if you've seen the remake, the Zack Snyder remake, um, that's a film I enjoy. Um, but it's very different the the scares are you know it's it's much more a modern horror movie um and um you know they're they're very different films i i would if, even if you've seen the the remake and and love it i would recommend watching this um just for the context of it if if not you know if not for it hopefully being something that's a a, a completely different experience and give you a different appreciation for it yeah, yeah. You know, I think Romero is a really interesting guy with Night of the Living Dead and then uh, Dawn of the Dead. I mean, you, know, you have he makes some fun movies, you know, he does Creep Show and stuff like that. But uh, yeah. his his Dead series, just that whole anthology, all of them, even when the movies are, I would argue, bad, yeah. his, uh-huh. his subtext is on point. I mean, that dude, yes. that dude is an artist. You know, he's an mm-hmm. auteur. This guy is not just... Now the zombie's so overplayed. Whenever you think of whoever made the zombie movie, uh, yeah. I mean, he didn't like. Again, we could talk about other movies, right. Carnival of Souls, different things where it's like they're not really zombies, but I don't yeah. know. And then I'm getting on a tangent. The point is, <laughs> Romero is uh, 
just one of those guys that, you know, he really is doing some kind of highbrow work and what people would maybe now call lowbrow horror. Do you get what I'm saying? Um, so, you know, like Night of the Living Dead, you know, you see zombies in it, but they don't really, they're not really causing too much havoc. Like you almost have to go out of your way for them to like be a problem. The problem's yeah. inside that house. The problem is the fact that, you know, the black guy's trying to lead things, you know, like, like there's yes. a whole comment on race and there's a whole, I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff going on there. And Dawn of the Dead, I would argue, even takes it further. I mean, you're talking, like you said, about consumerism, and there's race also in there, and there's all, like, the the uh, the power difference between civilian and, and law enforcement. And, you know, all of these aspects uh, exist there. I think Dawn of the Dead is great. And I actually do like the remake, but the thing is, the remake is very much for the, you know, contemporary Walking Dead fan, right? Like, it's very much... That 28 days later, fast zombies, like, get your ass out of there. They're going to eat your intestines, you know. Um, you have that, and it's cool. And I actually did enjoy that movie. I don't love it, but I, I could watch it and be happy. You know, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the original, the remake lacks the context and and subtext of the original. And I think that's really what uh, helps it excel. So, I mean, I'm with you. I think it's a great choice. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and the, maybe the last thing I want to say about it, um, uh, you know, you you mentioned the the consumer culture. I think I mentioned it too. But there's actually a line when they're, uh, you know, as they arrive at the mall and they see the zombies and they're just kind of ambling around, and you know, and they're walking and like the escalators are still working and they're you know they're, and you know, and one of the characters says, "What what are what are they doing? Why are they here?" And you know, and, and then another one says, "Well, I don't know. Maybe it's a an instinct." You know, this is where they were truly happy. You know, this is just where they're kind of naturally drawn. Yeah, and and it, it's it's very much that you know they're coming. Hey, what what do we do? We're just going to come and shop when there's nothing else to do. Yep. And that that's yep. what makes us happy is is spending money. So that's kind of you know that that's what they're doing in in a uh, uh, roundabout kind of way. So am, am I remembering correctly, or am I just you know uh, projecting? Aren't there are there still like TVs and stuff working in that? I think for for a time, but they're they're start they're starting to cut, go offline while they're while they're there. I feel like yeah. there are advertisements or something at one point. Is there like an advertisement that plays again? I could be making this up. There, th well, there. I think there are advertisements throughout the mall. Yeah, so it might not be on a TV. Then it might be elsewhere. Yeah. But it's just uh -huh. such a clear commentary on. Oh yeah. Like, hey, whoa, 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 don't think about this. Just buy this. Just buy it. Yeah. Uh -huh, um, absolutely. and, and yeah, it, man, what a great choice. That's, that's your number three, number three, yeah. number three, Dawn of the dead. Uh, what, that's, what is that? 78, 1978. Yes. Yeah, I still got it. All right. My number three is, uh, man. Wow. Well, I mean, just what a picture, uh, 1982, John Carpenter, the thing, um, I think a lot of people have seen this, maybe not quite as many people as have seen The Exorcist uh, or even my other two choices, to be honest. Um, but, you know, it was a budget of $15 million. It made $19.6 Mild box office success. They made their money uh -huh. back and uh, a little more, right? And, of course, yeah. you know, John Carpenter prior to that did Halloween and, and some other movies and, and, and 
after that goes on to make just some really great, even non-horror fun movies, Big Trouble in Little China, Escape from New York, you know, all all of these uh, just cool movies. Um, And he did, uh, 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 what is it, They Live? They Live, yes. Yeah, yeah. So so a a lot of fun. Um, Starting, uh, They Live, starring Rowdy Roddy Piper, Go Wrestling. Uh Anyways, so uh, back to the thing. Uh, this is a, a remake of A Thing from Another World from the 50s. Uh, there has been a remake. or Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's supposed to be like a sequel. Or is it a prequel? It's a prequel. I don't remember, but they did something in 2011, I think it was, called The Thing. It's basically, they try to make it like, I, I think it was a prequel or a sequel, one of the two. Uh, they try to make it that, but it really is just a remake with other scenes. I mean, that's basically what it's doing. It's not that great. Um, I don't think it's like worthless, but it's just, just watch this one. This one's really great. And, and much like your, your number three choice where subtext really matters. I think part of what makes me love the thing is for those of you who haven't seen it, there is an alien, uh, that has been, uh, an alien race that's been frozen in, uh, the ant, uh, in Antarctica, for however many years, and basically they thought in order to try to, you know, uh, contribute to science and whatnot, of course, you know, humans ruin everything. That's kind of what we need to learn So <laughs> from every horror movie ever. Um, and basically, uh, this alien can take the form of anyone. So it can kill someone, uh, consume it or whatever it does, take its DNA in some way, and then it recreates uh, that person. So anyone could be this creature. And uh, so, I mean, the whole movie is mostly, you know, it'd be like if I was like uh, in a room with you, Joe, and someone else, and I was just like, wait, don't get close to me. You could be it. Like, it's just that paranoia of like every single person. I won't touch my wife. I won't touch my friends. Like, it could be anyone. So you have a flamethrower pointed at every person, no matter who they are. <laughs> um, now, now th- I will say something about that. I'm going to call it the remake, even though, like I said, it could be a prequel. Um, but the 2011 The Thing, they do a cool thing with fillings. I don't know mm-hmm. if you saw that, but, you know, like anyone that uh, it can't replicate uh, something fake. So with yeah. fillings, like if you don't have filling, I don't know. They 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 had some fun with that. I thought that was kind of clever. Yeah. But aside from that, you know, uh, the original thing is, uh, man, is this not uh, an absolutely uh, mind blowing practical effects movie? Oh, absolutely. I yeah. mean, it, we'll get into that because I I'm sure you're gonna want to talk about that. But I'll tell you, like as a practical effects uh, lover. This movie not only does them brilliantly, but, dude, it is the creativity behind them. You know, a a, 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 a decapitated head, or uh, however you want to put that, you know, grows spider legs and starts crawling around the ground. I mean, that's fucking weird. And then the (laughs) end of this movie gets fucking crazy. Like, the end of this movie is wild. Uh, and I mean, you know, he's setting people on fire and shit. I mean, it's just crazy. The paranoia is there. The tension is there still to this day, in my view. Uh, also, you know, Kurt Russell with a beard and those just lovely, beautiful blue eyes. You know, I mean, you know, he he's great. Uh, like I said, he is wearing a badass leather jacket and just toting a flamethrower most of the time. Um, 
The other thing about like subtext, the reason I brought up your choice for uh, Dawn of the Dead and stuff is, uh-huh. you know, a lot of this was uh, kind of an allegory for for AIDS at the time as well. You know, yeah. so uh, in the eight, late 70s and into the 80s, you know, AIDS was a big deal and people didn't know what it was exactly and they didn't understand. And and so they just knew that, you know, homosexuals get AIDS. So uh, but how but how can they give it to us if I shake their hand? Can I get you know, this was like a huge issue for your average uninformed, uh, you know, uh, civilian. And so, yeah. you know, they're as the best horror movies do. Uh, they play off of existing fears by giving you kind of an allegory, and the allegory in this is uh, is the alien, and and uh, so you know you have you have real world in a film history way, you have like real world context basically playing off of real fears, uh, and like I said, the the production of this movie is just unrivaled at this point. I mean, even something like like Kubrick's The Shining, which you already brought up. You know, like mm-hmm. that—that's beautiful, and I'm—I'm I'm kind of like going to exclude and set that aside because that is as good as any film production-wise that's ever been made. But yeah. I mean, like, look at just looking at genre horror movies of that time, much like the thing is. I mean, you know, name a movie that looks better than this. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I mean, this yeah. is just the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is awesome, but it doesn't look this good. I mean, this is no. the creativity, uh, the set pieces. Uh, the the allegories, the subtext, um, all of it, the gore. I mean, there is gore in this. The the huge yeah. payoff at the end. I mean, this is really what puts the thing at number three for me. What do you think about it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, and th- this is going to be the reason why the thing is not on even on my list. Is I saw it years and years ago, and it's one of those ones that I've seen and I've not seen it again. And it's a it's one I need to revisit. So some of my memories of it are. Um, they're clouded a little bit. I've, I've seen bits and pieces of it here and there in more recent years, but I haven't watched sat and watched the whole thing again. Um, but my memories of it are, yeah, are that, that paranoia that, you know, the Wilford Brimley plays a big role in this film as well. Right. If I, if I remember right. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, dude. And real quick, like I had never seen him in a movie except for like, is he in the abyss or, or he's in one of those. He's cocoon? in, he's in cocoon. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I get those mixed up sometimes, which, uh. Very this, different movie. Yeah, for this for the <laughs> same reason you are right now. They're so foggy. I just for yeah. some, they're super different. Um, but yeah. yeah, it's like Cocoon and this movie, uh, and then yeah. like Oatmeal and Diabetes. Yeah. Like that. Like that's all I know. Wilford Brimley. But go yeah. ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. But the the thing I wanted to talk about the most is John Carpenter's career. Just is you know more on a a broad overview. You know, you mentioned Halloween. The if there is. If there's another case of a filmmaker just insisting on doing his own thing, I I don't I can't think of a better example of that than John Carpenter just yeah saying I'm going to do what I want, you know, and I'm you know once I do it, you know, if, if you want me to do a I don't care, I don't want Halloween, you know, he famously um, turned down the sequel to Halloween, and he continued to cash check. I mean, he cashed in on. Nobody cashed in more on doing less than John Carpenter did for the Halloween franchise just because he was like, I made my movie. This is it. You want to you want to make your sequels? Go ahead. Write me a check, you know, and he did that and he turned that in. I mean, he did Assault on Precinct 13, 
um, before Halloween, then he did Halloween, and he did The Fog, which is a very underappreciated movie. As a matter of fact, um, I'm probably going to mention that when I when we talk about our um, um, our um, honorable mentions, honorable mentions in a little bit, um, because that's another one of my absolute favorite films. Um, you mentioned Escape from New York, Christine, Starman, which is a which is a love story romance. You know, it's not a horror movie at all. Um, Big Trouble in Little China is an action movie, and then he does stuff like. Prince of Darkness and they live and in the mouth of madness. And it's just, he just does what he wants. He makes the movies he wants to make. And he kind of just doesn't give a damn if you really like it or not. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, if you like great, if not, Hey, whatever. You know? yeah, and, and just, just to add to it, you know, we're talking about him as, as a director, but you know, he also yeah. did uh, music. He's composed yeah. uh, music, not for the thing, but uh, you know, he, I, I'm pretty sure he famously composed the Hall Michael Myers theme for Halloween. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Hall I mean, you just, I mean, what piece of mu mu movie music is more iconic than the Halloween theme? Yep. I mean, really, I mean, is it more iconic than say the psycho theme? You know, I mean, I would argue yes, you know. Oh, well, I mean, um, especially on like uh, on a on a uh, uh popular level, I think yeah. that uh Halloween is way more pop culture because it came out in a time when blockbusters existed and yes. uh has really taken off much like Nightmare on Elm Street or any of those. Uh yeah. so you have that whereas Psycho, you know, I feel like to some extent you have to really like film to really yeah. kind of dig into that movie. So I, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So he, he's such a talented filmmaker, you know, I mean, you know, you can go through those films and, and some of the, you know, some of his, especially his later stuff is, you know, maybe not as good, but I mean, man. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately I think John Carpenter and man, I can even think of people in my brain, friends of mine that would just get on Twitter and give me shit for saying this. But I, I stand by it. The last movie I saw by him was a movie called uh, Pro Life. It was one of the Masters of Horror uh, TV uh -huh. series things, and it was really yeah. terrible. Yeah, um, uh -huh. And and unfortunately, I didn't like Escape from L.A. either. Um, mm. I'm looking at his his uh, thing, but I think from, like everything from They Live and before, uh, yeah. maybe not everything, but like a lot of. I mean, he has some bangers here, man. Like, oh but yeah. He, unfortunately, I think his vision and his style is not conducive to the way films are made today. I don't yes. think he knows how to use CGI and he knows how mm -hmm. to use the, I mean, he had a vision and they could pull it off cause that's how you did it back then. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I can't give him enough praise for being able to make these awesome movies. And if you're listening to this, this is unrelated to horror, but if you've never seen big trouble in little China, Oh man, go yeah. out of your way to see how fun that movie is. Do I think it's yes. the most incredible cinema? No, but do I think there's an auteur behind it? Yes. Yeah. And I uh -huh. think, uh, uh, man, again, you know, Patrick Swayze or pa whoa, hold on, <laughs> rewind. <laughs> uh, uh -huh. Kurt Russell, sorry, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, Kurt Russell basically doing his best like John Wayne impression or something. You know, <laughs> oh. he just has such a weird cadence in that movie. Um, and I mean, if you like Mortal Kombat, you have like basically Raiden from Mortal Kombat as these like yeah. three weird, like supernatural guys, a head explodes in it. I mean, dude, this movie is wild. Go check that out. 
Uh, Escape yeah. from New York is really fun. It's like when I watched it, it felt like I was playing a video game. Like it felt like yeah, some yeah. kind of weird thing like that. Uh, oh. The fog's on my list. I've actually never seen it, but that's an exciting thing. I mean, right. uh, I I I'd, I don't know why we're praising John Carpenter right now. Like it was unsolicited, but I will say uh-huh. uh, he deserves it. I mean, he's a really uh, awesome and kind of. Um, I mean, he's he's responsible for so many iconic things. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's my that's my number three is the thing. All right. Uh, well, Joe, let's move on to now. We're down to two each. Two. What the two heck? Left. All right, yeah. all right. Go with it. Your number two. All right. My my number two. Um, this is the film that that um, I showed my daughter to scare her. Um, I actually, um, in a in kind of a strange coincidence, I'm actually. Writing for um, writing about this film, I just finished it today. Actually, um, a piece on this film for Midwest Film Journal for you know for our uh, uh, you know our friends there at Midwest Film Journal. Um, for um, is this for Evan the no Os- is this for the No Sleep October? Yes, for the No Sleep October. Yeah, um, this is and I called it in that piece, and I will stand by this for as long as uh, it, it is the case for me. The scariest movie I've ever seen. Uh, and, oh and my God! I, you are building this up, Joe. I am. I am. This movie, you're gonna, you might be a little surprised. This film is from 2005, directed by Neil Marshall. This is The Descent. Yep. Yeah. I just want the you to Descent. know before you dive into this, I just watched, rewatched this, uh-huh. uh, like less than two weeks ago. So we're we're on we're on a thing right now. <laughs> so tell us yeah. about it. Yeah. So so The Descent. Um, it, it's, uh, it starts with in, in the, when I wrote the piece, I, I purposefully did not discuss this opening scene or, or I didn't reveal exactly what it was. I, I think I'll do it here. Uh, the, the movie is 15 years old by now. Um, the, the film starts with, um, a, a family, a husband and wife and, and their daughter driving on the highway, just having a conversation. And there's a car accident that kills the man and the little girl. And it's a, it's a gruesome, out of nowhere, horrific car accident, and it uh, it reveals the the star of the or the protagonist of the film is is Sarah, who's played by Shauna McDonald, and um, she, as you can imagine, is very, you know, traumatized by this event. <laughs> so um, cut for cut you know fast forward to a year later, and uh, a group of Sarah's friends are trying to help kind of get her to kind of, you know, maybe start to move on with her life just a little bit. And they have these adventure trips that they take, you know, they do whitewater rafting and things like that. And this time they're going to go explore a cave. So there's a group of them. I believe the most terrifying like activity one can do. I'm convinced. Okay. Spelunking. Yeah. If you're a spelunker out there, I love you as a human being, but why would you do that to yourself? Please continue, Joe. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so they they go into this cave, and you know, there and there's a little bit of angst between them. Uh, Marshall actually he takes uh, great care to be. He almost kind of lulls you to sleep during this part of the film. The first half of the film is is really very tepid. Um, aside from that first little bit of trauma, there are no scares. It's it's very much character building. You're learning about the the women and their various relationships with each other. Um, you find out there's a character named Juno who kind of has a history of doing impulsive things that 
um, kind of rankle the, you know, the rest of the group. And she is the one organizing this trip. And, um, so they, they go into the cave and, you know, they're kind of just doing their thing for a while. And then one of the women gets stuck in a very narrow little cavern. And it's a real, for someone like me with claustrophobia, it gets really intense, really fast. She's panicking and she's stuck. And, you know, it, it turns into this, it turns into a little more of a dangerous situation because the, this part of the cave is now unstable. They're finding out and they, you know, they have to kind of stop and calm themselves uh, while, you know, at the prospect of, you know, this cave could collapse at any moment and kill them. And so they, they, you know, they get through this part of the cave and then the movie starts with a group of beings, monsters that live in this cave that have apparently lived there for some time, um, have been feeding on animals for who knows how long. Um, they've adapted to cave life. They cannot see, but they can hear pretty well. And they start to pick off these women one at a time. And it, it's a, I, I might compare this in a superficial way for, to From Dusk Till Dawn, where if you have no um, prior knowledge of what the film is about, what you've been watching up to this point, you might think of as um, more of an art film, even not necessarily an art film, but but um, kind of a more character-driven drama about a group of women, right? And it suddenly turns into this totally merciless, balls out, if you'll forgive me saying that, for a film almost populated by entirely by women. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what the, you know, I, I would love a, a woman centric, a female centric, uh, synonym to balls out. Um, but it is an absolutely merciless horror film where these, the women are now battling these creatures and the creatures, I mean, a visceral, I mean, they're literally eating these women alive and it comes out of nowhere. They're, they're fierce, just animalistic beings, and it is completely terrifying. Um, I, I'm actually looking at the IMDb, IMDb page while we're, you know, while I'm sitting here talking to you about it. And there's a lot of, um, you know, we talked about um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the scene at the end with uh, with Sally and and the terror and the close up on her eyes. They do a, there's kind of an homage shot that Neil Marshall uses for his main character. That's I would argue equally as terrifying as that particular scene. Yeah. But there, so essentially the, the film is about trauma kind of, you know, you know, we're talking about the subtext. This film is all, is all about trauma and the things that happen during this film to the women, the things they have to do to survive, they are becoming animals themselves. And there are, you know, they're, they, they really, to say they're getting in touch with their animal sides is not going far enough. They have to become almost these animals, these monsters to survive. And they do gruesome things. Sarah does gruesome things to them. And she finds out as she's going along that like that previous trauma, she suffered the trauma of this event, whether she survives or not, you know, if she survives this, it's going to be with her the same way probably forever. Um, there's actually two endings to this film. Um, 
one of them is uh, the original ending is much bleaker than the um, than the the thea- American theatrical version. Um, I very much prefer that version, um, and it's just a matter of there's one more scene kind of tacked on to the end of um, you know what we see in the American version, but it is utterly terrifying it, for a, a movie with relatively generic looking monsters. Neil Marshall does such a good job of not only setting up these women as real people and making this as believable a situation as he possibly can tying in the, uh, the the claustrophobia of the cave that, you know, the, they're essentially lost, you know, trying to find their way out of this cave and, you know, they're panicking, you know, fearing for their lives. And then these monsters show up. Right. So it's like, you know, it, it just, it ratchets up. At, at about the 90 minute mark and, um, you know, t- tying it back to my daughter, I told her, I was like, well, this is, if you, if you didn't think the Texas chainsaw massacre was scary, I'm going to, we're going to watch the descent. And, uh, as we're watching it, as they're going into the cave, she's like, dad, this movie's not scary. What are you talking about? And we, you know, when we get to the, you know, to the, the claustrophobic moment and she's like, Oh, and, you know, and I see her squirming and I, you know, and she's, she's uncomfortable. And then by the time the creatures get here, at one point, she begs me to turn the movie off. And she calls me the master of horror movies. And she is absolutely like, Dad, please turn it off, turn it off, turn it off. So I pause it, and I was like, do you really want me to turn it off? And she's like, maybe we should watch the rest of it. (laughs) (laughs) And and we did, and she loves it. Uh, She showed it to one of her friends um, who also loves horror movies, and and we – we actually threatened her little brother with it, uh, my youngest son, um, because he is starting to talk about watching scary movies. So we actually tried to get him to watch it, and he uh, completely just stepped away and refused to watch it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, um, yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I will compl- I will completely and forever stand by this as the scariest movie I've ever seen. Um, I watched it and didn't watch it again for a decade because it stuck with me so much. Um, and then I watched it again with her and just, I fell in love with it on a whole different level. And, um, you know, I, I have these different memories of it now, but it is, it is a traumatic film to watch. Um, you know, we, we were talking about one of the other films, um, about the horror of it and how the horror is not easy. Um, funny games. We were talking about funny games and, uh, last week. Um, and it was, yeah, it, it's very much, the the vibe is the same. Well, the you know the kind of that result of, is the same. Where it's like horror is not necessarily going to be fun. It's not this scare and then chuckle. At, you know our scare. You know the the quick stab and then we're moving on to the next one. Um, the the horror is trauma in this film and it and it's long lasting and and it sticks with you and um, it, it's brutal. So um, that, that's why this is my number two. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I like I said, I just rewatched it, and and I, I do want to say this: uh, the descent was on my list um, mm-hmm. until about two weeks ago when I was kind of reforming the list. Uh, I don't remember if I said this, but in 2012, I created a top 20 list, and uh-huh. uh, so what I did was I took the top 15, and then I tried to rewatch some of the ones I didn't remember very well, and then the ones I didn't get to, I took off and put in place movies that I did remember that I felt deserved to be on it. And uh, the descent is 100% an honorable mention for me. And yeah. um, I remember when I first saw it. Here are some things that stood out to me that you didn't mention so that I can add to uh-huh. here. 
Uh, one, you know, you mentioned that they are these developed, believable characters, and and in my view, I see them actually as they were stereotypes to start. Yes. And by the end, because uh, they all fit like a Spice Girl, basically. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they all have like this. Uh, very, uh-huh. you know, you have like the really cool, like outgoing oh. wild one. And then you have like, I don't know, like th- there's just these very specific characters. But once once yeah. the monsters come in, these creatures, uh, that all goes kind of out the window. And yeah. and now you just have scared people. Uh, yeah. And and I, I, I love that. I love the lighting in this movie. Yes. Um, it's all just like uh, glow sticks and mm-hmm. um, I think a couple of flashlights. I mean, it's really uh-huh. dark. Um, everything in this cave is just super wet. I mean, one of the things is it's Sarah, the main character, the protagonist is the one that gets stuck in that scene in the cave and they have to go back and she, you know, barely gets out. And, um, the, the thing that I fell in love with this movie about the first time I saw it, which probably was 2010 or 2011 way back then. And, uh, it was on a lot of people's like favorite horror movies. So I watched it. And the one thing I loved is, the first hour of that movie is just them splunking. That's it. Yeah. But the mm-hmm. the tension, it's almost like a suspense thriller or something. The tension comes from the person who created it lied to them all. Yes. So uh-huh. like they're in a place that is uncharted. So they, they don't yeah. know what to do. You know, they had a map yeah. and it doesn't matter. And so like right. that's part like then you're like, oh fuck. Like what are they gonna do? Right. And they're climbing over like underground caverns. And you're like, uh-huh. someone's going to die. Like, I was tense when I first saw this. Less yes. so the second time, admittedly. I didn't feel quite as tense. Uh-huh. Um, but the, my first experience was fantastic. Uh, and and I just felt like, man, this could be a horror movie for someone like me already. Yeah. Just like this first, before creatures show up. And then, of yeah. course, because they're blind and they they, at least they assume that it's like an echolocation thing where they can hear and right. uh, reflections and whatnot. Uh, like with these creatures, since they're blind, obviously you get the, you know, protagonists being quiet and then these yeah. creatures being like within two feet of them and it's that yeah. kind of tension, you know, uh, but it yeah. really is amped up. And Neil Marshall, uh, went on later. He, he, he directed other movies. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know if I've seen any of them. I think I've seen one other, but I'd have to look at the IMDB thing. Uh, but yeah. he did direct a few of my favorite Game of Thrones episodes, and they are also yes. night episodes. Um, and he's just so good with darkness. And so lighting uh, is really great. His direction was really great. I don't know the difference. I've only ever seen the DVD, and we'll have to talk after this is off because I don't want to like spoil yeah. the ending. Um, I don't know which one I've seen. Uh, but I like it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit more ambiguous, and it's a bit it's a bit more bleak, uh, and so that makes me using your language. It leads me to believe it's one or the other. But um, I just I love that. I I, I don't know, man. I I really do enjoy this movie. Um, like I said, it it barely kind of missed uh, missed my list. If I had a top twenty, it might be it'd probably be on there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, great choice, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the descent is Joe's number two. Uh, my yeah. number two goes in a very different direction. It is uh, from 1979, directed by Ridley Scott. This is the sci-fi horror uh, movie Alien. Um, that I think. So see, now we're getting into you know we start with Psycho, which I would argue is is just a phenomenal film, but also kind of fits into. 
uh, a more old-fashioned horror. And then you get into The Exorcist, which is really extreme. We talked about that. And nothing had ever been like it prior. So you're getting this very new thing, which we see shit like that all the time now. But at right. that time, and done like that, I would say we we don't. But, uh, I mean, that's a unique experience. Then you go to The Thing, and that is also really impressive. But now we're getting into these last two choices for me. But I'm speaking of aliens specifically. I mean, these are this is great cinema. I will put this up against any other movie. This isn't just horror. These last two choices, I would make the argument. These these are just really great films outside the genre. And Alien is often just seen as a sci-fi movie, but this is this is sh- like uh, beat by beat a horror movie. I mean, this fits yeah. that classic classic mm-hmm. horror structure, and. Um, you know, you have the incredible, incredible set pieces. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. spacing the guy's name who came up with all of the... Uh, Giger, H.R. Giger. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. See, uh-huh. my brain. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but yeah, H.R. Geiger's like killing uh-huh. it with the look of this movie. I love yeah. that they don't explain everything, but like you uh-huh. have all of this context and like information that is just like, what are these giant creatures in, like, a cannon that has now somehow, like, cocooned into it or however you want to say, you know? Um, and then you, like, dude, I just love... The lighting is incredible, especially if you watch, like, a new restored version of it. Again, yeah. back to <clears throat> how I was talking about Psycho, but this even more so. Dude, put that out today. Like, it looks so good. And there are a few editing things that might age it a little bit, and... You know, the final explosion of the ship at the very end. My friend mm-hmm. laughed at it, and I'm like, it looks cool. Shut up. You know, yeah. but I get it's old. Fa- like, it's 1979. Fuck off. Right. But, <laughs> um, but Watch but, the original Star Wars and tell me if it's any, Yeah, you know? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, dude, I mean, what can you say? Xenomorphs? This is the mm-hmm. birth of the Xenomorph. Uh, yeah. I love that it's only one. So it's not like uh-huh. Aliens, the James Cameron um, sequel. Uh, which mm-hmm. is not even horror anymore. It's like a sci-fi no, yeah. action movie, you know, which is awesome. Yeah. I love that movie, but yeah. this movie is so superior in my view. And uh-huh. um, I mean, the tension, you could cut it with a knife. I love yes. just the stories behind it where, you know, you have um, John Hurt. No, John Hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. See, uh-huh. I got that one. I got that one. Yeah. Uh, but John Hurt, you know, like doubling over and then falling on the table and having the alien pop out. And I love uh-huh. that no one in the cast knew. So they thought he was actually having, you uh-huh. know, like something wrong. So all their expressions and stuff, they're trying to play along. They haven't said cut. They don't know what's going on, but these uh-huh. are real responses. And that goes back to, you know, Hitchcock with the birds and he has all the birds uh-huh. in the claw. I mean, people have done this. It's an age old thing, but man, does it work in mm-hmm. such an iconic way in alien the opening yeah. sequence, the very slow movement through corridors, and you see all of their little sleep pods open so slowly. The lighting is incredible. The sci-fi effects are awesome. And by that, I mean the computers and everything. It's just a billion little lights. You don't know what any of them do, but it just looks fucking awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like um, Back to the Xenomorph thing. I mean, all the goop coming out of that thing. I love that it's like a real weird slender little weird xenomorph you know like it's yeah. not some big creepy thing it's like i mean it's very creepy but i mean yeah it's not like the later ones where they're like bulky and big and you know yeah. uh like the queen bee you know this is like just like one alien 
and it picks them off one by one, right? Uh-huh. And it's just the most classic. I love um, the outfits that they wear when they're in space, the huge bulbous helmets. Um, yes. Man, I mean, just there's not a single thing I dislike about this movie. I think it is perfect. Like I said, one could argue some of the editing for the time was spot on, but some of it's yeah. pretty, pretty, you know, when they're trying to do effects through editing is what I'm saying. And I, I'm, yeah. try, I'm I'm going to find the guy's name real quick that I'm thinking of. Uh, Ian Holm. Uh, there's a yeah, point yeah. where Ian Holm, um, you know what? If you haven't seen Alien, you should just have seen it. So I'm going to say this. But uh, Ian yeah. Holm is uh, an android, unbeknownst yeah. to our Sigourney Weaver protagonist, Ripley. Huh. And um, whenever his head is decapitated, basically, and they wire yeah. him up so he's just a head talking you know, yeah. there is an edit there that you very clearly see. I still think oh, yeah. it's fucking badass. Like, yeah, I mean, like, it's just all this milky white goop everywhere. <laughs> like, dude, uh-huh. I mean, I, I could just talk about this movie forever as well. I think uh, the first time I saw it, actually, when I was younger, when I was like 16, someone uh, there was like someone I was staying with had HBO and it was on and I just like went to sleep. I thought it was so boring. Yeah. You know, and then post 2003, when I got into movies, I finally watched it again in like 2010, 2011. Because uh, that was a big horror year, if you can't tell, <laughs> like around that time yeah. for me. Uh-huh. But uh, man, I watched it and I was absolutely blown away by this movie. Yes. Um, I'm going to shut up for a second, Joe. What do you <laughs> think of Alien? Yeah, I, I'm I'm on board. Yeah. Um, I The the thing I really love about, about the these lists is we haven't shared our list with each other. So these are, these are surprises to us, you know, as we announce, as you know, as I'm announcing mine, I'm announcing it to you and the audience and and vice versa. Yep. Yep. Um, I didn't include alien on my list and I, I thought about it um, because man, I love that movie. Yeah. The, just a couple of the, a couple of the things you didn't, you didn't mention um, that I wanted to point out the, the face huggers as just as a concept is incredibly terrifying. Oh yeah. They, yeah. They, they look like insects. They look like giant insects, sort of a scorpion meets a spider meets some, you know, an octopus or something. And just that concept of them grabbing your face Number one, touching you, you know, just the idea of them touching you is, is absolutely terrifying, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and then them getting on your face and impregnating you with an alien being that's going to kill you. And it has kind of, the defense mechanism that if anyone tries to stop it, it will kill yes. the host. Yes. Like, yes, how absolutely. do they fucking come up with this? I mean, yeah. like, do you know if there was any source material to make that up, or is that for that movie? Because that is sincerely, I mean, name a more creative alien right, yeah. in any yeah, movie. Yeah. It, yeah, it's it's like the ultimate of evolution, right? Like it's, and, and I'm sure that's what Ridley Scott was going for in that, right? That it was, it was an engineer. It's an engineered machine of death, right? The the xenomorphs and just the entire species, right? It's it's a it's a um, it, it's almost a virus in the form of an actual carbon-based creature, right? And so, yeah. you know, the the acid blood, yeah, the you know that that defense mechanism of you know from from the very beginning, if you injure it, you know, injuring it is 
could mean death for you, right? Yeah. Um, with the acid blood and it, yeah, it's just, it's just a, a perfect, almost perfect nature's perfect killing machine. And it, you know, it's in many ways, it's, it's the shark from jaws, you know, it's, it's Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. It's, you know, it's, it's just a killing machine and it has no conscience. If, If anything, the, the look, the the face, the way the face looks, it's almost this kind of terrifying grin that it has. Yeah. So you almost have this feeling of if there's emotion, it's joy in killing, right? Yeah. And that that's this is all that it does is kill. Yeah. But also and, also think of real quick, like with the Nightmare on Elm Street, we were talking about how kind of transformative and and rev- yeah. or revolutionary, rather, I should say, yeah. uh, Freddy was because you had these typical slashers with like a knife or an ax or yeah. whatever. Uh-huh. And now you have this guy that can reach you when you're asleep. Like what a yes. different concept, you know, uh-huh. just, just five years prior, Ridley mm-hmm. Scott does something equally as revolutionary where now you have yep. nature's, uh, ultimate predator. Yeah. Right. And, uh-huh. and so like just to draw a through line kind of between last week's, uh, choices, uh-huh. uh, where we, I, I forget if it was on, no, it wasn't mm-hmm. on yours. It was mine. Uh, my number six, uh-huh. But last week when we talked about Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, talking about that, just a through line where I think this was equally as revolutionary in terms of of, uh, how, I don't know, just like a lasting, like even every movie that I see an alien in, even if it's just alien versus predator or like whatever it is, I just believe they still exist. Like no one's going to extinct, make make, uh, xenomorphs extinct. You know, right. I mean? like yeah, I, I yeah. sincerely feel like they're just kind of an unstoppable force that if they could only get to our planet, we'd be dead. Right. You know what I mean, yeah. and I know that's part yes. of the fear of the movie. Um, yeah. You know, that's the whole point of it is like we got to get huh? it back. And um, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, and, well, and I was going to say, too, you, you know, you think about the time it came out. It's we're just a few years removed from Star Wars. You know, which was, you know, which is the, this is almost a, a dark mirror version of Star Wars in some, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, as far as being set in space, you know, being a big space adventure kind of thing. It, this is like something that Star Wars wouldn't have the guts to necessarily explore, right? Yeah. Um, you know, that this is, you know, Star Wars is, is the kiddie stuff. This is like, this is the, this is the real final frontier. This is, you know, to, to borrow Star Trek, you know, a Star Trek analogy. Um, but it's, it's the, the terrifying part of it. And, um, yeah, the, and, and I, and I do want to mention too, the use, and I should, I should also mention my cats. Um, my cats are named Ripley and Newt. Nice. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, uh, references aliens, you know, more, uh, a little bit more maybe than, than alien, but, um, obviously that's where it came from. But so if that gives you kind of a, uh, an idea into my fandom, um, it's, uh, the, I, I do want to point out that as that film begins, and this is another kind of a slow burn too. Yep. Um, there's, there's a lot of kind of drudgery from the ship that, you know, like you said, as a kid, you're like, oh, this is going to dull. Um, and, it kind of just slowly amps up that tension. And, and again, much like the descent, there's a lot of that, that, uh, dissension is between, or that tension is between the crew members and and kind of dissension in the ranks. And you're really not sure for a while who the protagonist actually is. And it it kind of has even a, a little psycho moment there 
where you know the the assumption you might make is that is that Dallas played by Tom Skerritt is the the protagonist of the film until he's killed off in an absolutely terrifying sequence. Um, just the the tension in that scene and the editing in that scene is spectacular where yeah. he is he's hunting down the xenomorph in the dark and he's got the you know the gun with the flamethrower on it and you know and they're they're talking to him telling him where it's at you know they they can track it so they're trying to tell him where it is and they're like it's right on top of you it's right it's it's five feet away from you and he's like i can't see it i'm looking all over the place and then he turns around and there it is and it's just oh and that that quick jump scare basically that quick like the flaring of the alien then it cuts i mean what what an incredible thing and I also want to bring up like Veronica Cartwright plays Lambert. She's the other lady mm-hmm. that's not Ripley, uh, yeah. basically. And uh, uh, I, I, I mean this endearingly. I honestly mean this with all due respect. I, she's so fucking annoying. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but but yeah. I say that to say like that adds to the tension in the movie for me. I think she's yes. perfect. Like so. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. When I say I mean that endearingly, I, I sincerely do. Like she annoys the shit out of me. All she does after she sees one person die, and I would be her. I right. would be Veronica Cartwright in that situation. So I'm not yes. saying it's unrealistic right. or anything, but like when she she's just whining and mm-hmm. just out of fear, and I understand it, but it's like shut up. But yeah. it like grinds my gears a bit, right? Like it grits, it's gritty on me. Uh, but mm-hmm. that just amps that tension up for me, you know? Like. Yeah. It's not just fear. It's yeah. like the performances are even like getting at my nerves. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh-huh. And man, I, I I really, really love this movie. And I think everything you said spot on. And uh-huh. I just don't think the Alien franchise ever. Aliens is great, but that's like an entertainment movie for me. I don't see yeah. the magic that uh-huh. this had. And I feel like a lot of people would say the opposite. But uh, this slow burn is everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that's not only why it's my number two, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. why um, I think to this day it is still, I mean, name a horror movie, and I would argue there's only one better than mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah. my number my number two is Alien. Uh, dude, hey, we are at our number one. We are already Ooh. at a full-length episode just for our top five. <laughs> Uh, so, um, give us your number one. Uh, yeah. So, um, not, I, I don't know. It, I, I don't want to say it's boring. It's, it's, um, but it's, uh, it, it's not a, you know, it, it's, it's not a choice that you, that might surprise anyone. Um, I, I am going back to John Carpenter and, um, the, just the granddaddy, the Halloween, the, the OG, um, you know, the, the boogeyman, the simplest, you know, simplest of, of uh ideas a guy with a mask and a knife terrorizing babysitters um it's man (laughs) it it spawned you know a massive movement of you know it michael myers spawned jason spawned a million other you know killers up for the next 40 years they're still making sequels to this movie um they just and they invent and reinvent this thing and don't and somehow they don't manage to make the movies all that much different than each other but you know i i love i i'll just say as a franchise i love every one of the halloween films 
save the two Rob Zombie ones. Um, I but, love you. I love you so much right now. <laughs> I have I have a story, a Rob Zombie story uh, about Halloween, actually. Um, but man, this film again, the way it was made on you know that that almost cliche shoestring budget. It it was essentially. It was essentially the Blair Witch Project before the Blair Witch Project in terms of like just such a tiny, tiny budget and the the massive phenomenon that it became as a result of just you know doing something right. Yeah, uh, and it's it's John Carpenter's vision, like you said, down to that. You know, we talked about that uh, the score that just to this day is terrifying. Um, it's just it's it's for me uh, even the silliness of it the silly scenes of it um it's still a perfect movie to me um the silliness just you know adds to it you know there there's there's plenty of things you can watch and just go this is silly and ridiculous yeah. this the scares by today's standards are not you know no, nobody's nobody is going to watch nobody no teenager or you know young adult who's watched horror movies their whole life is going to watch halloween and say that's that's terrifying to yeah. me just because yeah. they've seen a bazillion ripoffs of it, but no one did it better than Halloween. Even, you know, from at that time or since no one's done it better than Halloween to me. Um, and Michael Myers remains the, the, I, when I have, I'll say this as an adult and, and I will admit last night, um, this happened to me as an adult, there are two things that I have, nightmares about generally sharks and michael myers and last night i had a michael myers dream (laughs) (laughs) it still scared the shit out of me and it it remains the one thing the one you know the the one human thing that that really truly scares me and frightens me um as much fun as i have watching all those movies so um yeah, so that, that's that's what makes Halloween number one. Yeah. Um, it's it's timeless. It's gener- you know generationally it has endured through the years. It's now more than what forty years old, and you know like I said, there's still Jamie Lee Curtis is still making Halloween movies, and these newer ones um, coming out are are pretty fascinating, if nothing else. Um, and I, yeah, I just I I enjoy it on a level I don't really in, probably enjoy anything other than maybe uh, you mentioned Marvel superhero movies. That and Halloween are probably the two things in my life that I just 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 bring me joy and you know on on different levels. So yeah. that that's it. That's my number one. Yeah. See, you know, the only reason Halloween is not on this list is because I like the thing more. <laughs> like, and I have my rule, yeah. right? I have the, I have the one filmmaker. I mean, this is a great choice. Uh, Halloween. I have several things to mention about it since you uh, brought it up, but also didn't mention these things yet. Uh, one thing I want to talk about is. The Rob Zombie movies, I I hate them. Okay, and yes. and I mean like on if they're not half a star on Letterboxd, I need to go change my my thing. And I'm probably uh-huh. being too hard on them there. One, they explain away too much of Michael Myers. Michael yes. Myers exists as the boogeyman. In the mm-hmm. opening scene of the first Halloween movie, you have the doctor and his uh, uh, nurse or assistant or whoever driving in the night on a road. And yes. he continuously calls Michael Myers it. Yes. He calls him it, right? Uh-huh. And she keeps calling him him, and he keeps saying it. Why? Mm-hmm. Because Michael Myers is the epitome of evil. 
He's yeah. not a human anymore. He is evil. So mm-hmm. by by developing this this slasher character in that way, what you do is you give context and um, back to suspension of disbelief, like we talked about when we talked about found footage. Um, yeah. You know, it's not believable at all, of course. But right. what I mean is, like, they establish him, and within the context, it qualifies him being able to be seen. And then someone mm-hmm. turns away for one second, turns back, and he's gone. Right? He's not yes. human. He's the epitome. He is a physical representation of the most evil. Right. Yes. And so uh-huh. um, that I mean, what's Jason got? He drowned, and his mom sucks. Like. Right. He's not yeah. coming back. He's just killing right. campers. Like fuck that guy, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, Freddie. He he was like a pedophile. He got burned alive, and now he's right. like fucking with people in their dreams. Like that's really cool. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Huh? Uh, I mean, right. of course, it was on my list. But Michael Myers is worse than the fucking devil, right? Like this guy yes. is evil, and so I love that. And that was lost in the Rob Zombie remakes because mm-hmm. they develop him as a human being. And that makes yes. no sense, and your suspension of disbelief snaps instantly, at least mine did, yeah. because they yeah. give too much context. The reason Michael Myers works, and the reason Jamie Lee Curtis is the protagonist and not Michael, like he was uh-huh. in the later ones pretty much, uh, or like the remakes, I mean, yeah. uh, Jamie Lee Curtis has to be, because he is not a protagonist, he is not a hero, he is not mm-hmm. a person. He is the representation yeah. For the conflict, right? And yep. I think it is perfect. Also, his camera work in that movie, that mm-hmm. whole the first person shit, like especially yes. through the mask. Of course, the opening scene's great, you know. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. But uh, like, the, I I could name movies that did first person stuff before, but did anybody ever use it like he did in that movie? Uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, I mean that that was well, and just the. the I just thought of one, was, but. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was gonna say the, um, just that that open that entire opening scene is, I believe the the moment where he puts the mask on is the first cut of the film, and if I remember, if I I'm I'm try I think I'm remembering this the right way, and that's a good like four minutes into it. Because it, the film starts outside of the house, and it's so it's it's ostensibly Michael outside of the house. He's watching yeah. his sister. They go up. Her boyfriend's there. They make out for a second. They go upstairs, and they they presumably do their thing, but like in ten seconds. <laughs> yeah. he, I mean, he was a teenage boy. It's believable. I mean, you know, it makes sense. But <laughs> you know, I I I sympathize with the dude, but you know, he. He needs to get some lessons and some things, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So he leaves and then Michael enters the house. And like you said, at this point, you don't know who it is. Yep. He enters the house. He walks into the kitchen. He grabs a knife. I believe it's a knife. knife, He grabs grabs the butcher knife out of the out of the drawer. Then he walks up. This is all I believe this is all one unbroken shot up the stairs. And then on the floor is the mask. And he grabs the mask and puts it on. And I believe that's the first cut of the film. And and then, of course, that leads to the to the murder. And I, I completely agree with everything you say there about, you know, about the character, about the, the evil and how that Rob Zombie version 
you know, ruined the character, right? Ruined, ruined Michael Myers as, as a concept. I, I there's, there's, you know, there's, um, a, another origin story that for a arguably horror film character that I thought was, uh, is kind of the best comparison to, to the Rob Zombie Halloween is, um, Hannibal rising with, uh, for Hannibal Lecter. Mm-hmm. I watched Hannibal rising and I said, that's not how you would create a monster on the level of Hannibal Lecter. Like that's not having, giving him a sister that he loved so much and the Nazis taking her, like that's not what would create Hannibal Lecter. And by that same token, the the way Rob Zombie developed Michael Myers like the character that he is with the mom who loves him and who takes care of him and who he loves, that's not going to create an evil on the level of a Michael Myers. Like it's not even, it's not close. Yeah. Maybe he could become a weird serial killer, but not Michael Myers. Yeah. Like Michael him. Myers is, is like, uh, like Rosemary from Rosemary's baby. Uh-huh. It's Rosemary's baby. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like Michael Myers can only be, that character by being <laughs> Rosemary's baby because uh, he is birthed from Satan. He is the ultimate evil. And and uh, another thing that I, I love that this turned into a bitch fest anti Rob Zombie thing. Um, uh-huh. And it's nothing against him. And I actually like some of his movies. Like it's cool. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, yeah, I hated this. And and they also make Michael Myers this like like did he work out a lot? Like why is he so giant and muscular? I, and they right. did the same thing to Jason in the remakes. I just, I oh. hate that. I love the tall, slender guy and like basically a janitor onesie, you know, yeah. <laughs> like the uniform right. thing, you know, like uh-huh. that's way creepier to me, man. Like, and then like talk about the close quarters, man. Whenever he goes after Jamie Lee Curtis in the closet, that's yeah. intense, man. So yeah, the- I don't know. There, there are a lot of things to that movie. Again, think What I want people to do if they have never seen it, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have, and I expect that, and sorry if we're going way too in-depth talking as if people haven't, uh, but we really love these. And and for those who haven't, or for those who have and didn't like it, I encourage you to go revisit it because remember this. It came out in 1978. Prior to that, you have Carrie. Which is mm-hmm. a, a is is a hit now, you know. Like we yeah. we know that movie. Nothing like Halloween. Yeah. You have uh-huh. you have uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which you could draw parallels, but mm-hmm. no ultimate evil, right? These are just yeah. like backwood hillbilly fucking weird guys. You know what I mean? Right. Um, uh-huh. But like this is like an ultimate evil proper slasher, right? <laughs> Very different vibe. The Exorcist, yeah. completely different film. And we've already talked about prior to The Exorcist, it's a, a whole different ball game. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, this is the first of its kind. It has mm-hmm. been overplayed to the hills, as my grandma would say, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's—I mean, it's just a masterpiece. I agree with you. Yep, that's a great yeah. number one. Yeah, 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 and I, yeah, and the, uh, and then what Carpenter brought to it, you know, is uh, and and I'm not, and I don't want to be a snob because I love, I love, I watch Halloween Five, you know, like Halloween Five is. A terrible movie. <laughs> it's a ter- even my daughter. My Halloween is my daughter's first love. Um, 
you know, all, you know, and I, I've talked to her a little bit, like as, as I get older, like there's a lot of, I'm filtering a lot of stuff through her. Halloween is what she wants to watch whenever I'm like, Hey, let's watch a scary movie. Okay. Let's watch Halloween. And yeah. I'm like, we watch Halloween a million times. Let's watch something else. But there's a reason why she wants to watch Halloween. <laughs> it's because it's yeah. amazing. And, but I will sit and watch it. I, I think Halloween four is underappreciated, um, in a lot of ways. Um, Halloween five is a terrible movie. Um, the next one, the curse of Michael Myers is, is maybe worse. Um, and then there's the one with Busta Rhymes like, that's maybe even worse. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I can watch – I can sit and watch and have a level of enjoyment for any of them um, just because of that you know, concept. If Even if I'm watching the Rob Zombie Halloween, I'll just – if I just fast forward through all that crap at that first half and – you know, I, there's a level of enjoyment, you know, that I can have just from seeing Michael Myers working, um, <laughs> doing his work, but the, you know, and the, the story gets silly and convoluted and they try to explain a bunch of stuff and, you know, it doesn't work. And then there's, you know, now, you know, the, the, the more recent ones now they're, um, they've chosen to just ignore all of the previous ones, um, which is kind of, which is kind of curious, you know, given, Jamie Lee Curtis was in several of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an interesting tactic to take. Um, but there, you know, it, it rendered all of the other ones into kind of just a, what if, you know, yeah. um, it, to, to talk about like a, a, a Marvel concept. Um, it's, it's almost just a, what if, or an alternate universe or something. And, um, it, it's not, in the end is not that important, you know, the, honestly, um, and, and the whole concept of Michael killing his family members is kind of a silly, you know, a silly crutch anyway. But they, you know, each of the films has its own kind of charm. And um, but but the the original for Carpenter's, there's the two moments for Carpenter's and Carpenter's film that sets it apart. And the one one is the first uh, when Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, uh, Laurie Strode and Michael Myers are, you know, having their their final battle when she's 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 killed him a couple of times right stabbed him a couple of times where he should be dead and she's upstairs and she's standing um she's standing there not and behind her is darkness right and you slowly see the light coming onto his mask where he's right behind her yeah that is such just a absolutely brilliant use right there of, of light. And, you know, he talked about, you know, of course there's a million documentaries about the making of, and he talks about, you know, how he had this one light that just, you know, kind of, you know, increased the brightness until it revealed him. There's that. And then there's the shot of where she's killed him for like the fourth time. <laughs> and he's, you know, he's laying dead and, you know, and you can argue about the wisdom of her stand sitting there, you know, crying and you know while there's a murder you know a murderous psychopath laying behind her but that she's he killed does four the, times right yeah she's she's killed him four she's just stuck him in the eye with a you know a coat hanger and stabbed him with a knife and then you know and, and you see her behind and you see him do the sit up you know the sit up and then the head turns and when the head turns that music cue hits yep and it's just like but it's the silence when he's sitting up yeah, you know, he, as he busts up, the right? Undertaker. Yeah, 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 and and that's where the Undertaker, you know, got his, you know, got that, and it's and it, it's hilarious and amazing. It's awesome when he does that, but um, 
and you know that moment again was just you know it's just one of those holy shit you know kind of moments so um and, and then of course the ending you know is you know again is timeless and is how it, it's not it's not even necessarily a uh, imaginative way to end the movie but it works so perfectly and you know with the concept of michael myers and just sets up the forever sequels and yeah uh, I mean, made John Carpenter rich and, you know, makes us happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, uh, I just can't stress enough how this this was not done before. You know, yes. you could talk about Psycho and you could talk about, uh, you know, uh, Bates, you know, getting uh, some kind of starting kind of slashers ish. Yeah. You know, or mm-hmm. however you want to talk about it. You know, he uses a knife. He's cutting people up and right. all this stuff. But, man, no one did it like Carpenter and Halloween. And I think, I think that's a good number one. Uh, Hmm. And I'm glad it was represented because it was going, it's my number one honorable mention only Hmm. because I have another Carpenter movie and that goes against my criteria. So Mm -hmm. I'm so glad it is um, represented here. And I'm going to go ahead and jump over to my number one. Yeah. uh, Which actually has already been mentioned and I can't wait to now add to it. Um, But my number one, no surprise is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Um, with Stanley Kubrick being my favorite filmmaker, uh, The Shining was a large part of that reason. It's not my favorite Kubrick movie, but um, you know that that's like I mean I, all of them I love. <laughs> it's like right. it's not yeah. saying anything about the movie. It's just yeah. uh, I mean everything he did was gold for me, and um, I guess like. Something I want to add to what we talked about uh, last week is I did a lot on Kubrick. I'm trying to put my thoughts together real quick because uh, there's a lot to say here. So basically, one thing I love about The Shining is his use of of, uh, fear. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I went to I went to a conference and spoke on Kubrick and I, I talked about how he constructs a really unique uh, level of fear in this movie. Now, of course, uh, that fear is arguably subjective. Of course, you know some people won't be scared watching it, but I'm talking about technically how he approaches this uh, strategically. And so, you know, every scene you have the fear of the unknown, right? So you have the twins that just pop out of nowhere whenever Danny's like playing darts. I think that's the first time you see them, and um, you know, like the room two three seven, like all this shit that makes zero sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, like none, right? Uh, yeah. That is, um, you know, for many people can be really, I mean, that's iconically scary. Um, yeah. and, and the large reason for that is because it it is fear of the unknown. We don't understand what's happening. And they're mm-hmm. like these creepy twins that like speak in unison. Like, I don't know, just like the whole thing doesn't make sense. How are they there? Yeah. Why? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just a really bizarre situation and then you get into jack torrance's dissension into madness and that slowly slowly goes also playing off of the fear of the unknown but also playing off of things that we can grasp like when we realize Mm -hmm. that it's grady that he's talking to in the bath like but we've already heard Mm -hmm. his story right um like you start you have the reverse engineering kind of of that of that plot point and uh, I mean, man, uh, just the, the slow pacing of it, the way he uses the camera, for example, there are several moments, uh, I think it happens 
multiple times where he's walking to the ballroom to get a drink uh, yeah. from the uh, you know the phantom uh, bartender. Yeah, and uh, he walks down this corridor toward the camera, and uh, the camera's pushing in on him, so they're coming at each other. And then yeah. he turns into the ballroom, and then it's following him, right? Yes. So it, you're like this weird disembodied fly. And, and the culmination of all of this, because I could go on and on and on about all the different uses of fear that he uses and things like that, but it's the scene with um, uh, All Work and No Play makes Jack a doll boy, yes. right? And and uh-huh. and uh, when, she, when, when Shelley Duvall's character reads that, and um, I mean, you know, they infamously did this scene like 200 times or whatever, just so right. Shelley Duvall would actually be as exhausted. Uh, mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it led to her having a nervous breakdown that I don't know if she actually ever recovered from, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, that scene, you know, the whole time it's cutting back and forth between perspectives. It's very difficult to have a grasp on what you're doing. It's disorienting. You're yeah. at one point you're following. Shelly Duvall as she's walking away and you're you are the predator right you are coming up on her as she's swinging the bat feebly you know in in his direction sobbing and then it cuts to her and now the predator is coming after you the prey right so you have these really awesome camera techniques that he's just just all this camera fuckery that he's just like cerebrally like Uh messing with you you know it's like it's like cerebral gymnastics uh, trying to break this movie down in that way. Uh, yeah. But I mean, that that's all like uh, super nerdy. The, the point is like all of this is constructed on purpose. There's mm-hmm. not a moment that in this movie that is by accident. It is, I mean, he is one notoriously, and again, in some circles, infamously known for essentially punishing his, yes. uh, his people and his, his wife actually filmed a, I think it's like 20 or 30 minutes, like or 45 maybe, a documentary called The Making yes, of the Shining. And uh, so anybody who hasn't seen that, go find it. It might be on YouTube even, I don't know, but just try to yeah. find it. Uh, it's probably in the special features in some of the Blu-rays I know it is, but uh, see yeah. see about that because uh, it's really cool to, I mean, it's not cool, it's actually really sad, but, um, but you know, like, Shelley Duvall has a nervous breakdown on camera. Like, they have her laying down against a wall, she's hyperventilating, she's screaming at Kubrick as he's outside in the snow, <laughs> you know, uh, she's, like, screaming from inside, and she's, like, super upset, and this really does start to breach an ethical dilemma of, yes. you know... You have a filmmaker like Kubrick who's making these incredible timeless movies, I would say. I mean, I mean, Barry Lyndon is really slow and boring for some people, but mm-hmm. show me a movie that looks more like a painting and mm-hmm. and I'll give you a million bucks. Like that's like that movie is beautiful, you know. Yeah. Uh and I mean no one shoots like him. He's a unique person to this day. And yeah. um so he's constructing this and 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 you know th- even in something like Eyes Wide Shut, which I'm not as huge on, but I still, of course, like it. And yeah. um, there's a scene where where Tom Cruise walks into the bedroom and throws his mask on the bed. He did it like 107 times. Yeah. Why? Because Kubrick forces his talent to essentially live in the feelings. Like he 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 um uh what's the word uh. Not falsely, but he uh, essentially tries to recreate what feelings the character would have in his 
uh, actor by forcing them to do things so that subconsciously or maybe consciously once they've worked with them, you know, long enough. Um, but mm-hmm. like he makes them feel those things. He makes them get there. He did this with Scatman Crothers as well in The Shining. Yeah. He did like 200. I mean, he did he again, so many takes on things that are seemingly trivial but the whole point yeah. is to put them in a headspace where they can actually get the performance. And another thing, you, you know, uh, I think we mentioned performances. You were talking about this being one of Jack Nicholson's, one of a handful of his just uh, kind of yeah. pinnacle tentpole performances yeah. in his career. And I agree, yeah. of course. I mean, I mean, what's more iconic than Here's Johnny, right? Like that right, scene. Yeah. Um, I literally can't think of one that he did. Other than you can't handle the truth, maybe that's up there, but right. probably not as you know. Yeah. Uh, so, anyways, like, I think that they're. When I first saw this movie, I was like, they are like Shelley Duvall sucks at acting. Like Jack Nicholson yeah. is really boring. Uh-huh. Like Danny's a joke. Like what's happening? And but you know, I've seen this movie over a hundred times. Easy. Just I studied. Right. Like I said, I went to a conference. I was writing a paper. I mean, I had to watch it a million times. And, you know, I started to realize that Kubrick intentionally has them so dry and bland so that by so you see the transformation of these very everyman people, very bland, very just white bread. And they turn into fucking Gordon Ramsay, best bread you've ever had over here (laughs) because Shelley Duvall, granted, again, I, I feel for her having a nervous breakdown during this, but. You know, yeah. that scene with uh, All Work and No Play makes Jack a doll boy. Her performance is so believable in that moment. Now, go back to the beginning when she's talking to the counselor, the therapist about Danny, yeah. and yeah. her performance is almost laughable. You know oh, what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And, but I also, if you watch other Shelley Duvall performances from that era, she's good. So yeah. this is clearly constructed with a purpose. And yeah. so you have a documentary like Room 237, and it seems so silly. And so many of these ideas are bullshit. But people get that this guy is meticulous. These are mm-hmm. for a reason. So, of course, people are going to concoct these wild theories about these things because yeah. Kubrick doesn't do shit just because. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, I mean, again, you know, we kind of talked about it with you. I intentionally withheld some of this. I could, this is literally a movie I could go on and on and on. I, you know, I, I could write page after page after page. (laughs) This is just, I've seen it too many times. I've studied it for too long. Uh, It never gets old. I think the, the, I think this movie is scary Mm -hmm. um, in a strange way. Uh, Just the tension of, of those moments like the all work and no play, that's kind of comical and it's meant to be uh, to yeah. an extent, you know. Um, yeah. It's man, his madness, right? It's yeah. his madness. Yeah. I, yeah. Dude, I even think him speaking to Grady in the bathroom yes. is creepy because, I mean, he looks maniacal at this point, you yes. know, and he's wild. And Grady, just his calmness juxtaposed with his almost over the uh, Jack Nicholson's over the topness almost, again, intentional. Yeah. Oh my gosh! When he's like, when he's doing the, the big bad wolf, like, yes. I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow you in, you know, like yeah. that is comical. But he's beating the door in with an axe, and she's screaming yeah. so believably. I mean, this whole thing is mass a masterclass 
in mm-hmm. any aspect. The music, which was heavily inspired by yes. uh, Pinderecki, if you've never listened to his music, it's literally all dissonant sounds. You know, I mean, wow. it's really, really scary music. Um, all the performances are exactly what they should be. I should word it that yeah. way because I wouldn't even say they come off good. But yeah. what makes it good? Well, it's exactly what the movie needs, and that's why I would say they're really great. I can't speak highly enough. This is my Halloween, as uh-huh. Halloween is to you. You know, this is yeah. my. Uh, if someone says, "Show me like a great horror movie," this would be my first one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, yeah, I, I, I can't speak highly enough. I think everything, uh, just fits like a a, a perfect puzzle. Yeah, and yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, the, just, the, just my, you know, kind of my, you know, the last comments I guess I can make on it. Um, to to your point about the performances earlier, yeah, there, the the scene where he is in the office when he's interviewing for the job, and I and I remember the line. It seems like the skiing at this place would be fantastic, and it sounds just and, like you just read it. Yeah, yeah, it's so and, bad. And he, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it, it was like it was like. And he even said, fantastic. And, and I'm like, what the hell? I re- and I remember hearing that and going, boy, that's really like a crappy delivery. And and you're completely right with Shelley Duvall also. The way that when she's talking to Danny and, you know, she's just got, oh, this little, you know, this, like, she's like Julia Child talking, you know. And it's, <laughs> yeah. and it's horrible. And I'm like, it, she and she's almost annoying and grating. Not almost, she is annoying and grating at yeah. that point. But um, the the one thing we haven't talked about that struck me about this movie is the backstory of the hotel. That you know they obviously they talk about Grady and and all that, but there there had been a series of odd and bizarre things happening right through the years that they don't really explicitly mention, but then they touch on it. Like the one thing for me. What the hell with the guy in the bear suit, you know, dude, the guy in the bear suit, (laughs) presumably like totally blowing a dude in a tuxedo. Right. So this is back to this fear of the unknown thing, right? Like that whole movie, the guy standing there with the cracked head holding up a martini and saying he says something along the lines of like, nice night we're having. Like, it's just some really basic thing dude you're uh, spot on i mean yeah, yeah what in the hell is with the bear suit but look yeah. at shelly duvall's face next time you mm-hmm. watch it like it yeah. shows her and she runs up and her eyes get that classic yeah. shelly duvall huge eyes and it shows the bear and he like sits up and then the tuxedo guy sits up and then it cuts yeah. back to her and she's like trembling like yeah, it, yeah. It, you know it's like but it's like that's not inherently scary but think right. of it in her perspective. She uh, goes upstairs and no one's supposed to be here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know? well, and not only that, there's that there's that voyeuristic aspect to it too. You, you know, there's uh, you know, and and being someone who has lived in places where um you could see inside other people's houses, there are times when you see things that you're not necessarily meant to see you know yeah and there's an there's an excitement and an even scariness to that right the the idea of being caught is you know the uh, watching right is is like a is like a, a primal fear almost right and it was the the fact that 
they turned to her and looked at her, right? Yeah. That that just sold that so much. And it was just like, oh, you know, I stumbled in on a guy in a bear suit blowing a guy in a tuxedo. <laughs> well, then they look at you and it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it's like not only are these, number one, these baby ghosts, you know, certainly they're people in a place where there's no earthly reason, number one, that they should be able to even be here, much less that they happen to, you know, that they're just people that are here. They're not, there's no way they should be able to be here. And here they are. And now they're looking at you. Mm-hmm. And it's just, that is scary as hell. And just the whole, like the, the I, I hate in, in modern terms to say the perversion of it, you know, but at the time that was kind of, that would have been maybe the word to use um, of, you know, that there's the aspect of the gay part of it, you know, is unusual at best, but, the furry thing. I mean, today, you know, furries is a thing. Yeah. And obviously that's what that's meant to be. But at that time, that was scary, you know, and, and it's still pretty kind of a freaky thing, you know, now, um, it, today, something like that might be played for laughs, you know, a scene like that would be, would be played more for laughs than, than terror, but it, it, it was weird and messed. Yeah. <laughs> it messed I mean, up a bit. yeah. Weird and messed up is like a great way to put it. And and I do want to say something kind of adjacent to the shining. Then we can move on to a few honorable mentions and we'll, we'll go ahead and call it. Um, you know, uh, one of the movies that, that Kubrick made uh, the cast sit and watch because he wanted to capture uh, like that type of intensity and that type of, uh, eeriness and unsettlingness was uh david lynch's eraser head so okay. um if you've if if you haven't seen eraser head it's a very abstract very bizarre movie of course i'm talking about david lynch so that should be no surprise and uh it's pretty cool in terms of just even just visually just a fucking weird movie you know um, but mm-hmm. if you watch that see what you take from that and then watch the shining and i think you can find something comparable they're very different movies very different filmmakers uh, but I think it's also really cool that someone like myself and others would consider Kubrick being at least one of, if not the great master of so many things, uh, turns to someone like David Lynch, who's still making stuff. And it's like, hey, everybody, look at this thing. I love this, and I want to do something like this. And I think that's just a fun little trivia. But uh, that's my number one, The Shining. We have now completed our top 15 favorite horror movies. This has been an absolute blast, Joe. Um, You know, I have some honorable mentions. Uh, Did you have any offhand? We don't have to talk at length about them, but just you know, name them and maybe a couple of lines about some of the honorable mentions you have. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think maybe just running through this uh, a short list. I actually compiled them. Um, I had a couple of leftovers um, from when I was assembling the original list, and then a couple that that um, along the way here I thought of. Um, I, I want to mention one that is that I've always loved. That might not even be that great a movie, um, but it's from Wes Craven. Uh, a post Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, he made a movie called Shocker. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen Shocker. I haven't seen it, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so it, it stars Peter Berg. Um, like I said, we won't get into it. Basically, um, Peter Berg, who is now a, a director, he directed Battleship and a, a handful of other movies. Um, most, some of them terrible, some of them good. He did Friday Night Lights and things like that. Anyway, um, uh, a serial killer is executed and becomes um, electricity, uh, an electricity zombie or something. Um, it, it's a pretty bad movie, but it, it's really entertaining to me. Um, we haven't talked much about Japanese horror, so I wanted to throw audition out there. 
as just oh, oh, so, such a messed up movie. So real quick, real quick, let, let me stop on that because I'm not going to have an opportunity uh, to talk about it because I limited myself at 10 because uh-huh. I could have made a top 50. I mean, like, yeah. maybe not ranked, but like for honorable mentions, oh, yeah. yeah. And I might even make a letterboxed uh, mm-hmm. on our Medium Cool account uh, just to yeah. put a bunch of fucking horror movies that I want people to be aware. Actually, I think I've already compiled it. doesn't matter. Pretty sure Audition's yeah. on it. Uh, if you yeah. haven't seen Audition, this is probably the slowest burn of any movie we've mentioned up to this point. Yes. But I uh-huh. promise you, I promise whoever's listening, yeah. if you watch Audition, it will pay off. That's all I'll say about that movie, but you can continue. It yeah. will pay off. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't, yeah. I, uh, I don't want to go yeah, too much into it for people who haven't seen it. If you've seen it, you know. Um, and if you haven't, you need to know. So go see it. <laughs> go go seek it out. Um, um, I I want to throw out the fog, which we mentioned briefly when we were yep. talking about John Carpenter. Um, the first pairing of Jamie Lee Curtis and Janet Lee, uh, mother and daughter. Um, they did it later in in uh, their, their Halloween twenty years later. Um, to much fanfare, but they'd already done it. You know, to what twenty years before um, with the fog, um, which is which is. You know, like I mentioned, such an underappreciated, just a gem. Um, and I, you mentioned you haven't seen it as one. You should definitely seek it out. Yep. It's a fun, old-fashioned ghost story. Um, really atmospheric. Um, plus, it's got Tom Atkins in it, and Tom Atkins is awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I can't, you know, uh, you know, as, as far as like cheesy 80s horror movie or action heroes, Tom Atkins is it. Um, I also want to mention a couple of um, – horribly bad movies um humanoids from the deep is one of the first movies that um one is one of the early horror movies i've rewatched it recently and it would be really tough to make that movie today there's a lot of rape in it um for one um but uh you know we talked about vic morrow from twilight zone the movie i think last week um he's in that movie and for some reason he's drinking coffee out of a Tupperware cup that's stuck inside of a coffee mug. I still don't know what the hell's going on with that. <laughs> but imagine a coffee mug with an old 80s style Tupperware cup, one of the tall ones, yeah. stuck inside of it, and he's drinking out of it. And I'm like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> uh, but it, it's a great, just a great monster movie, like I said, with some problematic things that you really can't get by with today. Um, and then the last one, a movie I just revisited recently um, called Bloody Birthday. My God, what a terrible, what an awesomely terrible movie that is. Um, <laughs> that, that's from, um, I, th- I want to say 1979, 1980 range. Um, it's about uh, three children who were born during a, a, a solar eclipse. And as a result of that, they are all three murderous psychopaths. And they're like a a trio of killers. So they're best friends and they murder people um, at will, starting with their own parents. Um, And it's it's just bizarre. It's completely not believable, but it's hilarious. And you might, you know, if you're a fan of of TV and movies um, from that era, um, you'll see a couple of people that you might recognize from either TV or movies, um, which is kind of fun. But. Um, it's it's just a fun, just a cheesy and made of its time movie. Um, there's there's a fun extended um, nude scene with, 
with uh, uh, Julie Brown, not the MTV Julie Brown, but another uh, famous woman from the early 80s named Julie Brown, um, where she's dancing while these kids are, are watching her. Um, she's dancing naked in her room while she's getting dressed. And it's like there's no reason for it other than they're like, we need some boobs in this movie. And they play this really great cheesy southern rock song that's like her soundtrack. It, and there, there's also some talk of um, astrology in there as well as part of the plot. So it's just it's just goofy and fun and uh, it, it's just kind of a, an interesting time. Yeah. Crazy. So, yeah, that, that's my list. Yeah, I you know I limited it to ten and I just added two, so we're gonna make it twelve. Um, right. But I'm not gonna talk about some of these. Uh, the first one on my list, and it was mostly alpha, I think it's alphabetical pretty much. Okay. Uh, but my first one was Halloween, which we already talked mm-hmm. about. I mean, what a great again. If I didn't have the thing on here, this would be somewhere on that list. Great, yeah. great movie. Uh, Robert Weiss's 1963, The Haunting. I think that's mm-hmm. such a great uh, gothic horror movie. Yeah. Um, really, really good, and and it's super old fashioned, but Robert Weiss is one of those guys where, you know, uh, one of my professors in undergrad would call him an auteur, and I always had a hard time with that because it's like, you know, he made The Sound of Music, and then he made, he'd had The Haunting, The Day the Earth Earth Stood Still, and a series Mm -hmm. of other movies, and they're all so different, but they're all good. Like, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, he was so good and so versatile. Um, So The Haunting, really great. Some newer ones, actually. Um uh, Ari Aster's uh, Hereditary. I actually yeah. really like that movie. I I, uh, I don't typically like a lot of modern horror, to be honest, or at least to the point that I'd mention it, but I think Hereditary is quite good. Uh, yeah. Really, really great atmosphere, and the end is like a pretty cool, weird payoff. Um, and uh, The House of the Devil by Ty West in 2009. Talk uh-huh. about slow burn, really slow burn, yeah. but wow, I love that movie a lot. A really, really cool vibe. This is the movie that I took off and put um, Eyes Without a Face in. Uh, okay. It was uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978, the Philip Kaufman version. And uh, I just don't remember it well enough, but I, everything I remember, I just adore this movie. And it, uh, in 2012, when I saw it, I put it on my top 50, or my top 20, and it was in even my top 10. So I had to like it so much. I can't wait to go... Uh, watch it again. It's actually on the Criterion channel, which I just recently got a subscription uh, to. And uh, so I'm looking forward to hopefully watching that. Um, another Ari Aster, uh, Ari Aster but uh, we're, we are going in the direction of kind of folk horror with uh, Midsummer. I actually yeah. really like that. And if I hadn't looked into subgenres and stuff, I wouldn't even know if I'd call that a horror movie. But then when you find out what folk horror is, actually, I'm going <laughs> to throw another one in there for the hell of it. Another folk horror is The Witch. Love that as well. Yeah. Um, Nosferatu from ninety or from twenty two, the old uh, F.W. Oh, yeah. Murnau. Um, love that silent uh, horror movie. Really, really great. Uh, have you, the, while we're while we're talking about that, have you seen um, Shadow of the Vampire? I have. From, uh, yeah, uh, that was a that was a really fun, just a fun movie. Um, I mean, if I remember kind of, correctly, the the whole thing's predicated on the idea that he's actually a vampire. Like it's the making yeah. of the movie, but he's actually uh, the guy. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So um, John Malkovich plays F.W. Murnau, the the director, and then uh, Willem Dafoe plays Max Schreck, who is the actor who plays Nosferatu. Yeah, and yeah, and the, the conceit of it is that he's actually a vampire, and um, it's it's sort of a kind of a quasi comedy. It's not really a horror film, 
but it's uh it's kind of a comedy drama and and Murnau is constantly trying to pr- i guess he's promised him that he's going to get to kill the the leading lady at the end of the film and he keeps trying to do it early and he's like no the movie's not done um, yeah. but it it's it's really interesting and fun obviously not a complete historical account but it's a really interesting you know movie kind of based off of that. Yeah. And there, there are some accurate moments to how they did some of the effects oh, and yeah. different things, which is really cool. Uh, so at the very least for that, it's worth it. And, uh, Werner Herzog remade it in 1979. And if you want to watch basically an art film version of it, uh, check that out. I mean, yeah. again, another slow burn, but, uh, I, you know, I remember liking it. I only saw it once, but, uh, also he made it, uh, in, uh, German and English and each oh, wow. one, was filmed separately. So the scene was filmed in German and then he would film the same scene in English. So technically it's two movies, yeah. you know, like they're two separate scenes. They're not the exact same. Uh, right. I just think that's fascinating. Like what, what an interesting thing. Anyways, back to my list, uh, the yeah. orphanage. I just rewatched this recently. It was on my list originally. Um, I took yeah. it off cause it just missed, but I love it. I mean, rewatching it, uh, uh, Bayona, I think is his name. And look, yeah, it is. Yeah, uh, Jay yeah, Jay Bayona, uh, 2007, The Orphanage. Um, wow, I mean that movie is gorgeous, by the way, yeah. and and I think I think the thrills in that are are, are quite effective. Um, yeah. I'm gonna skip the next one real quick. Reanimator, which I kind of tucked in with From Beyond, but it needs to be said. Yeah. Uh, if you like really bad movies, and clearly Joe does. Uh, yeah. Um, if you like bad movies and if you're like a fan of something as bad as like the room or something, watch troll Two. This was a a favorite of mine as a teenager. There's an actual scene where this kid eats a blowny sandwich at a troll and the troll explodes. Uh, (laughs) I think, I think it explodes, but that's amazing. Uh The, uh, the filmmakers Italian, even though it's an, an American made, a horror movie, mm-hmm. and the Italian director actually thinks it's an incredible masterpiece, and that yes. the reason it has such a big cult following is because it's that good. There's a whole documentary on Troll 2, actually. Yeah. You should just check that out. Yeah. Uh, but that's just a fun kind of cult classic. I want to bring mm-hmm. up two movies real quick, and then we'll call it. Um, yep. One is Frank Darabont's The Mist from like 2006 or something, or five or whenever that was. Yep. Do you like that movie? I... So I've I watched that movie in the theater. I reviewed it. Um, I believe I reviewed it. At the time that I watched it, I hated it. I didn't and like it all, much the first time either. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. It, it and it's all on the strength of so the 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 film itself up until the ending is just a, kind of your typical fun monster movie and it's a lot of fun yeah and it has you know and it has some some good subtext there's some you know the the religious you know the yep. religious fanaticism and things like that come into play um and it's an enjoyable movie the ending without giving it i don't know if we want to give it away but it's a downer it's a big downer and it as someone well, let me say this real quick. There, yeah, there are two endings. There are two endings, uh-huh. and I, if if your downer is the one, I'm going to try to speak very cryptically, and this would be fun uh, for our uh-huh. listeners. Hopefully, um, yeah. is it where uh, it's the end of the road, and there's no hope? If you understand yes. what I mean, 
Yes. Okay. Okay. We I forgot yes. that we can do um, charades uh, because we can see each other. Um, yeah. But anyways, uh, yeah. Okay. I love that ending. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now I hated it at the time. Now, uh, and and I, and I paused. Be, you know, you know, I I kind of paused in my speech because I almost said something that was I wouldn't say give it away, but would would be a, a major clue. I'll just say, given my life situation, especially at the time that that film came out. I found it very off-putting and disturbing and and not in not in the way the good way that the rest of the movie was. Sure. In in a very different kind of nihilistic way. Yeah. However, um Stephen King went on record as saying he loved that. It was not his original ending from the from his novella, I believe. Um but he loved it and signed off on it. I have a lot of friends who tell me that I should go back and watch it again. And I kind—it's kind of a movie I kind of want to watch again, and I do want to watch it in that that black and white version that they've made. Yes, um, because of that, just just to see it with fresh eyes and and to be able to absorb that moment, so, you know, in a different way. Yeah. So I want to say this: I wasn't a huge fan uh, uh-huh. of the movie, and I thought the special effects were stupid. You know uh-huh. what fixed it though? I watched the black and white version with the bummer ending, and I love a good bummer. So you know, yeah. that's just me. <laughs> I mean, and, and I mean, it is funny games level bummer. I mean, this yeah. is the most hopeless, sad ending. I can't even yeah. imagine. I mean, no wonder they didn't. That wasn't in the original one, was it? Was that in the original that, that theatrical? Was the, that was the theatrical ending. Yeah. Are you yeah. fucking kidding me? I don't even yeah. know how it made a single penny because I don't think most people I- could handle that. That's yep. tough, and the, that's why I love it because it's like imagine being in that position. It's yeah. like you understand why it happens, but it's—I right. mean, as parents, it's just really tough. Right. And um, but like, dude, the black and white makes all those effects because sometimes uh, they're a little cheesy. They're not the highest yeah. tech. They're aged now, uh-huh. but in that black and white, it makes it kind of feel old. You have this almost like cult like thing yeah um, man i mean that really made a huge difference so i'm specifically mm-hmm. endorsing the black and white bummer ending personally mm-hmm. um but that's that so the last one i want to talk about real quick i had two movies from 1960 on my top 15 i had eyes without a face and i had mm-hmm. psycho the third trifecta of the of 1960s peeping tom and peeping tom um is the movie i thought of before halloween where i said have you ever seen a movie that does first person Mm-hmm. You know, like murders, basically, like yeah. that did. Well, Peeping Tom did. Peeping Tom is a British movie by Michael Powell, uh, and it ruined his career. I think, as I said, I think I said yeah. that last week. Um, but uh, he kills people with his movie camera, which is a whole subtextual thing in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. uh, the difference, bet- uh, so basically, uh, he'll film these women, and then at the end of one of his legs, he can take one, like part of it off, and it's a blade. And he holds it at them, and he films them terrified and scared as he slash he slashes them basically. Yeah. Um. And so, uh, the, the difference between Peeping Tom and Psycho, which they have very a lot of similarities. I did a whole compare contrast, uh, uh-huh. essay on this because they're they're often lumped together, and Peeping Tom gets buried because Psycho's so popular. Peeping right. Tom, you are seeing it, uh, through the eyes of the killer and. Uh, the killer is, in I would argue, uh, shown in a sympathetic light. 
<laughs> now, Psycho, Norman Bates is not a sympathetic light, and he's only through half the movie, right? So right. it's structured differently. It's easier pill to swallow. Peeping Tom, you are literally seeing through his lens half the time, and wow. uh, you are in his shoes, and you are asked to sympathize with a murderer. And, P- I mean, it it killed his career. Literally, it is the death nail on this guy's yeah. just absolutely prolific and incredible career. Um, so... Uh, yeah, uh, Peeping Tom, I, th- I think it's just a, a, a it, it's a bit of a slow burn as well, but uh, it, it's really good. So uh, everybody, that is our top 15 favorite horror movies, along with like a billion other honorable mentions, because we just can't <laughs> shut up. Uh, but honestly, yeah, this is the longest episode to date, funny enough, and we didn't even do anything yeah. else except for talk about five, you know, yeah. movies, basically. Um, but Joe, that was a blast. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening and bearing with us. Hopefully this was good. Please send us any comments, questions, or concern uh, to Medium Cool Pod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just Medium Cool Pod. You'll find us. You can also send your comments, questions, concerns to mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. If you agree with us, awesome. If you don't, awesome. Just let us know. Um, Joe and I are going to be in the middle of figuring out exactly how we want to incorporate your input into what we do in the future. And then we're going to probably have some polls coming out that you guys can kind of weigh in on and help us figure out the content that you want to see or hear, I guess. Um, so please go follow us on there. Also make sure that you just smash that subscribe button. Make sure that you're following us on here so you can be notified when we put out new content. We've already put out a bonus content. We're going to be putting out more bonus content, and I would hate for you to show up on Tuesday and have missed a couple of really awesome bits of um, just fun content, right, Joe? Absolutely, yeah, and and uh, yeah, we're we're really got we have some really fun things in in the pipeline, um, you know, interviews with people. Uh, we have plans, you know, things we're going to try to do, um, things we've already done, things that are probably in the works. So um, hopefully that's going to be fun and interesting for you. Um, we, we do want to do things a little, maybe a little bit differently um, and and uh, just kind of find some slightly off the wall things that will just be entertaining and eclectic and and uh, hopefully things you guys want to hear and, and, and learn about. Yep. And, you know, I, I he kind of, uh, Joe just mentioned something. Um, these past three episodes, uh, this one and the prior two, not so much the bonus content, but our, our three main mainline episodes, we've really been focused on this horror month. Uh, come starting in November, next Tuesday, uh, we're really going to start kind of, I think, trying to move into what this show will actually be. Um, mm-hmm. So we're going to, you know, you'll get a better idea of what our structures might be or the things that we want to talk about. We're going to be remove, uh, reviewing new movies. We're going to be reviewing and uh, on like a retrospective light on old stuff. We're going to keep doing our lists so you can learn more and more about more movies to see. Uh, like Joe said, we're going to have interviews with uh, up and coming filmmakers, hopefully with some really awesome established filmmakers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, actors, the whole thing. And this is in large part thanks to the film app. So please go check out the film And I mean, on that note, I don't know what else to say, Joe. <laughs> so uh, I think we're going to get out of here. You feel good about that, Joe? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And, and uh, uh, hey, keep doing it. The more you do it, the, the more we'll do. Right. Yep. Sounds good. Well, that was Joe and I's top 
five from our top 15 favorite horror movies of all time. Uh, if you want to listen to our six through 15, that is episodes one and two, go check those out. You can get all 15 there. This is going to wrap up our October. So horror, horror uh, month is going to be, you know, out of here pretty soon. So make sure you get as many horror movies as you can in. On November 3rd, that is Election Day, which means here at Medium Cool, a movie podcast, we're going to be doing our top five favorite movies about politics, uh, and we'll just have uh, tons of great content for you there. Also, really exciting, uh, November 10th, we're going to be airing our interview with Galen Ross. Galen Ross is the lead actress in Dawn of the Dead. She played Francine. Uh, also, she was in Creep Show. She was in uh, Madman, which I think she's less proud of, but she was in there. She also is a documentarian now. She's been doing documentaries for like 25, 30 years, something like that. Really, really awesome lady. She's a complete treasure. And then on November 17th, we're going to be celebrating Martin Scorsese's birthday with an entire episode dedicated to the iconic, legendary filmmaker, Martin Scorsese. Um, all that and more coming up. Please, though, make sure that uh, you subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Podcasts or you follow us on Spotify. Make sure you're keeping up with us. Hit us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Medium Cool Pod. But whatever you do, just make sure you're having a good time with us. Let us know what your top five favorite movies about politics are. We'll have a post on our social media. Just comment there. Send us a DM. Send us an email at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Whatever you want to do. We want to hear from you. But until then, good night, good luck, and take it easy.